A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 162 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website's second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. But enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman, and with me like the phantom to my ghost, the EU guru himself, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey everybody, and no, that does not mean that I am figuratively shoved up his ass, because I'm pretty sure that's what the Phantom is to the ghost, right? Ooh. Or is it just that I'm your little, like, sidekick? Maybe that's what he's saying. Yeah, 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 little buddy. The Yoda to my Luke on Dagobah. Yeah, totally. Oh, didn't think that went through. Yeah, that, that, that works better. Well, hey, if you two want to be alone, I could go. <laughs> and with us this week, the chopper to our Zeb and Ezra, the host of the Star Wars Report's original Star Wars Rebels podcast, Rebels Roundtable, special guest host, Jonathan Brenner. Hey, everyone. So if I'm chopper, does that mean I'm homicidal? Because I could really go with that. No, it's. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, really a fan of your guys' show and, you know, as we know, a fan of Rebels. So it's kind of nice bringing the two worlds together. That's true. We, we're excited to have you on. It's it's part of the new uh, third host for books era that we're trying to kind of usher in. I guess it's not really a new era because it goes back to our Darth Plagueis coverage, but we're back doing books. So that's an important step in the right direction. Yeah, it's been a while. We've been dealing with comics quite a bit and sort of the broader topics. Now we're coming back around to one that we've talked about quite a bit before as being something that we were going to be covering. And that is A New Dawn, as we'll get into here in just a moment. So for those who are listening to this in the Rebels Roundtable feed, you might be sitting back thinking, what the heck am I listening to? What was that weird introduction? This is not the podcast I thought I was looking for. Uh, Star Wars Beyond the Films is a podcast hosted by me and Mark. We talk about anything really beyond the films. Could be cartoon shows that we tend to stick to the episodic coverage in Rebels Roundtable and previously Republic Forces Radio Network. Uh, we look at comics, we look at books, video games, uh, general concepts within the Legends continuity, the new canon continuity and such. And because the coverage this time around is covering A New Dawn, which is very central to the development of Rebels, because now that it's all canon, all supposed to be equal, this background on Hera and Kanan does tend to make a difference in how people perceive that show, we decided we would do this sort of as a simultaneous release as we did with our Darth Maul Son of Dathomir coverage. So you're hearing this through the Star Wars Beyond the Films feed, but you may also run into this with the Rebels Roundtable feed. If you've heard one, you've heard the other. They are identical episodes. We just wanted to open this up to perhaps a broader audience this time around. Hence, bringing in Jonathan from Rebels Roundtable. Now, it kind of feels like it's meant to be a crossover. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. 
you ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we ponder John Jackson Miller's A New Dawn, the first adult fiction novel of the new canon. Now, before we get too deep into our spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. And if I may, before we even get into spoiler-free aspects of the story, uh, something that has no room for spoilers but does deal with spoilers is how they dealt with releasing this thing. Uh, One of the things that we're used to is that Del Rey, if you're on a reviewer list, basically, will send out copies of a book early. And depending on which book it is and where you are on the list and how many copies they've got, sometimes what happens is a month or two ahead of time, you'll get this weird copy that's kind of purplish, purple and white, called an uncorrected proofs copy, an advanced uncorrected proofs, sometimes referred to as an ARC, an advanced review copy. And there'll be some subtle changes oftentimes between that and the final version of the book. Like uh, when I caught the age issue where they didn't have Jana Solo's name right, or age right, excuse me, in Crucible. And I emailed them soon enough that they could change it in the final book unless somebody else had already caught it as well. Um, You get that, and sometimes they'll send out a finished copy of the book maybe a week or two before it comes out. Sometimes they send both. It just kind of depends. So you've got this early window where you've got people who are reviewing a book, getting early copies, maybe not exactly a finished copy, but they're more or less bound to secrecy. You're not really supposed to talk about it or give review-type information about it in any detail until it's out, unless they give you special permission to do that. That's, of course, to avoid spoilers and such for people who are buying the book. And then comes the actual release date, the book comes out, sometimes there's spoiler discussion and whatnot uh, until eventually it comes out in paperback, and by then, spoilers aren't a big deal. This time, they didn't do it that way. There were no uncorrected proofs copies sent out to reviewers for A New Dawn, from what I can tell. Instead, several months, much longer than normal for an advanced review copy, several months prior to the book's actual release in hardback was San Diego Comic-Con 2014. And they gave out a paperback copy called the Exclusive Advanced Reader's Edition, which is basically the uncorrected proofs with a nice cover on it as a paperback that was simply given out for free at the convention for anybody who would show up at the Delray booth and want to get a copy. It caused a mad scramble to get copies of the book. Uh, we were lucky. We had some folks who were listeners to the show and friends of ours who were able to pick up copies. I've got a signed copy sitting here. We gave away a couple of copies until finally a review copy, if you want to call it that, a finished copy did show up from Del Rey, but it created this mad scramble to get copies of the books, and these people unlike early reviewers, usually were not bound to any form of secrecy. So for a while there, we had several months of just sort of spoilers running wild for this book that hadn't been released yet, and the people normally doing the reviews, in many cases not having a copy to review for the normal process that we're used to. It's an unusual thing, and from what I'm being told, Uh, It's going to happen again. It may happen with Lords of the Sith. They haven't said for sure. At one point, they said they thought it was going to happen possibly for Heir to the Jedi, but Heir to the Jedi doesn't have one of those. just has a regular review copy that was sent out and then the regular hardback coming out very soon. Uh, What did you guys think of the way that this whole release process worked and how they sort of took the old rules and tossed them and did something special for this first adult novel of the new canon? Well, from the review side of things, I, I felt it was really weird. I know, you know, certain sites when when a writer will go ahead and, and put his review out before the book comes out, before that window and stuff, everybody always feels kind of like 
slighted a little bit like, oh, well, they're getting a lot of hits because they're breaking the rules. But I don't know. There's like that etiquette and protocol that was completely thrown out. So I think a lot of people were just kind of like, wait, what's going on here? I'm, I don't know if that's an indicator of what they've been doing across the board, but a lot of this new transition from the one cannon to the other feels like you're running like one of those marathons and the baton gets dropped and they're picking it up and trying to race back to that point where we should be at, you know, in the race. So I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it was dropped in that regard. See, for me, I also got one of those San Diego Comic-Con copies and I haven't been as involved as you guys with the, you know, getting these advanced copies and reading them. But I was really excited to that they did it the way they did it because it really drummed up, I guess, a lot of interest in Rebels because it is, you know, the prequel to it. And I was so excited about Rebels that I was I was really happy that I got that copy so so far before the the show was released. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, did the hardcover come out? Before or after the premiere of Spark of Rebellion? Um, Spark of Rebellion premiered October. Yes, yeah, so it was it was basically one month. But either way, I was pleased that I got a chance to really read it before I saw that first episode because it was so integral for me to understand the characters. Or at least the characters of uh Kanan and Hera. What I kind of sit back and wonder, I'm, I'm less concerned about the review side of things, because honestly, a lot of times, I mean, if you get a new Star Wars book, you're really into it, and you want to review it soon, or I want to put on the timeline or something soon. I mean, shoot, you can blow through a book in about a week, give or take, just depending on when you get a chance to read it. So that, to me, wasn't the big deal. It, it's, a, it's noteworthy, because they did do something different than normal. What really kind of, of, kind of had me scratching my head was the angle of how much time there was between giving these out and the final book coming out, it kind of, it, it just, to me, it sort of exacerbates the thing that we saw with the films where you'd have a film coming out in May and the novelization and whatnot would all be out in April. And there was this question of, well, you know, doesn't that sort of defeat the purpose of a set release date because you're already putting the spoilers out there. Uh, we've also talked on the show about how the sales numbers for a new Dawn weren't quite up to where other recent Star Wars books had been. And I wonder to what degree, if at all, giving away so many copies made a difference. Because these things were showing up on eBay while the convention was still going on. I mean, they were immediately up there. I doubt mm -hmm. it had that big of a dent. But between that and the others, it just, it's, this is a book with a lot of oddity around the way that it was originally distributed. Well, in the sales numbers, I mean, that could also have been fluxed by the EU lovers that were taking the strategy of, well, we're just going to throw down. We're not going to want this. We're going to say no to this. It doesn't matter if it's attached with Disney at all. We're not going to go that route. Uh, you know, hopefully those aren't too big a numbers. Uh, you know, I, everybody knows my stance on this. You know, I want them both. So uh, I don't know. In that regard, it's kind of weird. But Jonathan, you mentioned something about it being a prequel to Rebels. And I think that that brings up an interesting point about the series Rebels in itself, because one thing I, I wonder is, did it work as a prequel to, to Rebels? But the other part of it is, is it, isn't it Kanan's tale? I mean, it was more his origin than Hera's. Uh, Hera came into the story and had a lot of background and stuff that wasn't really there. She had established connections with, a re you know, with the rebellion to a degree, but you still didn't know much about it. Very much to what we've got in the show itself. It's like, you know, she's kind of the leader of the rebel group, but you don't know much more beyond that. Whereas in A New Dawn, it really kind of explores how Kanan came to be in her possession, in a sense. Uh, and that was kind of how I kind of felt was like, 
I felt like for me, the more I went, Hera became the heart of the rebellion. She was the leader of the cause, but this story and the show kind of puts Kanan as the main character. And I, I think that was more established by the prequel aspect of this film. Uh, do you guys feel that that worked that way or not? Well, as far as the the way I took it as a prequel, it you know, Kanan is probably one of the three main characters in Rebels. And when I say main characters, because when I look at Rebels, the, the three integral characters are obviously Ezra, Kanan, and Hera. And, you know, we've, over at Rebels Roundtable, have discussed a lot about how the the group on the ghost is a family. And Kanan and Hera in that family are very obviously sort of the 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 mom and dad archetypes. And this is how mom and dad got together. And it really does sort of set the pace. And I'm sure we'll get into it as we talk about the book. But there's aspects to the relationship that are kind of laid down here that have us really wondering um, at the time of the series what's going on between them. So as far as a prequel, I felt it did a really good job because it it explored these characters, but it didn't – it still left some mystery there. Mm-hmm. So I knew more about them and I knew more about like you know her ship and some of her motivation. But I don't know. It, it, I, I remember reading this for the first time and it really whet my appetite for the mm-hmm. show. See, I, I keep feeling like we're owed a Hera story. You know, Kanan, this was his story. Ezra, we had Spark of Rebellion. But I feel like they're eventually, whether it be told in Rebels itself or they give us a book, I think sooner or later we're going to get something more on Hera. And I think when we do, I think it's going to be big. Well, I would agree with that. I just read today, because it's a very quick read, uh, Sabine's sketchbook that was put out. There was that Ezra, my journal or my Rebel journal, whatever, and then Sabine now has this sketchbook, both by Dan Wallace. And she makes a big deal in there about how nobody knows Hera's background. She doesn't believe that anybody on the ship has a clue about it and that she's keeping these secrets and, you know, she wants to know what the, you know, what the truth is, et cetera, et cetera. So they're definitely playing up that aspect of it. Um, as a prequel, I guess we've got to kind of judge this a couple of different ways. As a prequel, I would say this worked. At least as far as it goes, as far as establishing Kanan as a character, especially giving his background, and how he connects to Hera. I think you're right, there's really nothing we get here about Hera, per se, that makes it a great prequel for her. It's very much Kanan's story. And at this point, I wonder if Chopper is even aboard. It seems that it's, you know, Hera and Kanan get together here, and then Chopper gets added to the crew. If he's not already, because we don't actually wind up on the ghost for much at all of this story. It's just kind of a, a where they're trying to get to repeatedly. Then, apparently, Kanan is the one who recruits Sabine, according to the journal, or the sketchbook. And then along comes Zeb, eventually along comes Ezra. Uh, it's very much Kanan's story, though, so it sort of seems like this is Rebels with a big chunk of it kind of shuffled off to the side because it hasn't happened yet. The group members haven't all joined yet. So it works as a prequel for a character. But I'm not sure that it works as a prequel to the series per se. I don't think you really need to read this to understand the series, but it gives you more of an an interest in the characters and more of an understanding of Kanan Mm. as you go into it. 
The other way we have to kind of judge this, though, is does it work as the first adult novel for this new canon? It's not the first prose fiction for the new canon, which was how it was sort of being touted. That was Blade Squadron back in Insider, and it had already been published, and they turned around later and said, oh, by the way, this was the first of that story group's approved new canon. So enjoy after it was already out there. Um, they hyped this one up quite a bit, and it, it's it's had its detractors because of that. It it went into it kind of hurting at this point. I'm actually, I just got, uh, actually, I, I signed the contract today. I'm writing an essay on Rebels, the first season of Rebels, for a publication, a nonfiction Star Wars-based publication that's coming out later this year. And one of the things I'm going to be analyzing is, you know, how it went out of the gate with some things working against it because of the changes with canon and whatnot and how some people weren't willing to give it a chance. And the same thing goes for A New Dawn. And as far as being able to really kick things off for this new continuity, I think it worked well in the sense that it kicked off Rebels, and Rebels is in a, in a big way kicking off that new canon. I don't think this book would have really done anything, though, to quell the naysayers. Because it is pretty much just those characters from Rebels. It doesn't have a lot of impact on events around it, as far as we know. And really, all of these early books so far really have a feel kind of like almost Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Because this book introduces the two characters we're going to see in Rebels, and then gives us a whole bunch of characters around it, none of which appear to have any bearing on, you know, anything else in the future at all. Uh, the villain is essentially a one-off, it seems. A lot of these characters with them are one-offs. The only ones you expect to see again are just those two. With Tarkin, mm -hmm. same thing. Tarkin we'll see again. I don't expect to see any of the other characters in there except for film characters ever again. Same thing goes for Heir to the Jedi, that by the time this is being released, it's either out or about to be out. It's another of these quick little stories where the character development for the film characters is there, but I don't expect to see anybody back from that ever again. It'd be nice to in some cases, but I don't see it happening. So you get this sense of they're really kicking things off with these character studies, which are interesting and which are fun reads. But it's not going to win anybody over who's looking at this and saying, see, the EU has lost much of its depth. Or the books, I guess now, have lost much of their depth because the old EU and Legends has been stripped away and now they're starting from scratch. Uh, there's not a lot of epic storytelling going on yet in the new stuff. I liked it. And full disclosure, I did a an X-Wing miniatures game scenario with John Jackson Miller for an, an unofficial one, a fan-made one, uh, for an event that he was holding with the book where there was going to be some X-Wing gaming going on. Uh, so I have extensively talked about parts of the book with the author. Uh, I, don't, I think it's a good book by itself, but I, I almost think that this is kind of like Crucible. We needed something that was absolutely mind-blowing to make the naysayers shut up, just like we, mm -hmm. as Legends fans, needed something mind-blowing for Crucible as a real ending to that era and didn't really get it. Um, it's it's going to be judged based on more than itself, unfortunately. Yeah, I like the story. I, I'm not a fan of throwaway stories and characters, and I don't know, be, besides it being more Kanan's origin story... I did kind of feel like a lot of it was throwaway. There were characters in here that felt like they could have been some seriously wicked characters to have as reoccurring villains. Uh, you know, there I, I we're still in the spoiler part, so I'm not going to name the character's name, but there was a character that that felt like he could have been the next Nominor. You know, just one of these thorns in the side of everyone. Uh, you know, Rebels has Callus and and the Inquisitor, but you kind of had that sense like this might be another one of those the air type characters. 
uh, that, that ends up moving over from the books into the other show, which I would have thought that would have been so cool. But at the end of it, it, it felt because the characters felt like throwaways that a lot of the story could have been a throwaway. So while it was decent, it did have that feel like it wasn't an heir to the empire. You know, it, it didn't feel like any of this stuff was lasting beyond the story. And that I think for me is what hurts it overall, but it had a lot of things going in its favor. The characters were strong. The author, John Jackson Miller knows his, his Sith. So that works out pretty well in his favor. Uh, you know, I mean, the pacing was good. I really enjoyed it. I, you know, one of those full disclosures, I started audible with this book. So I was halfway through it and I was having a real hard time of getting it finished and I was walking home a lot. So I was like, you know, I've got plenty of time while I'm walking to and from work, but it's dark. It's late at night and it's been really foggy. So I couldn't have a book out if I wanted to and get all wet. So I was like leaning towards it. And I finally took the dive and Mark Thompson did the narration of it. And oh man, that was, it felt like an audio project. I mean, it, it was like an audio drama, the way he added roles to the characters. Granted, some of the characters, the way he said them wasn't how I was saying it, but his Vidian, oh man, he was such a vicious sounding Vidian and his Kanan is spot on. Like there were times where I felt like I was actually listening to the actor. I was like, wow, this is really good. Uh, but, but yeah, the pacing of it was really working. I was really interested in it. There were twists to some of the villain characters that I thought were really good that, you know, had some of these characters not been a one and done, they could have been some seriously cool characters to have had coming and going throughout the different stories and stuff. So there was that aspect of it that I wish we would have had. And another weird one that seems to be something with this new canon, And I hope it's something that doesn't stick around. Aside from the fact that we're not getting placements of the year on most of these stories in the stories is that there's no uh, dramatist persona, the, the character lists at the beginning. I, I really have come to love those being able to go back and, and, and you know, keep track of who's who sometimes, you know, and, and that was something that I'm noticing there isn't in any of the new books so far. And I'm like, please put that back in. I really miss that. Not only that, but there's no you mentioned the lack of a timeline in the book. There is nothing in this book to indicate when it takes place. Nothing. It's just sometime after Revenge of the Sith, once Canon has grown up, and it's obviously before Rebels. It took the Rebels visual guide to tell us that these characters met for the first time in this situation six years prior to the events that start the Rebels television series, making this 11 BBY, if we're even using BBY and ABY as, as the timing for it here. I am. <laughs> Jonathan, any other... Non-spoilery thoughts before I give us one quick little preface and we head into the spoiler part? I mean, I, you know, I've been a follower of EU since 1991. And, you know, it was kind of odd in some ways to read this book knowing that it was the first in the this sort of new world. But at the same time, every, you know, when, as I was reading it, it didn't really sort of butt up against any of this, you know, supposed new canon. And, you know, my my thought was, is that was this written before that decision had been made, do you think? If I remember correctly, it was. I believe this and the Imperial Handbook and several things, because um, I remember how I've talked to John Jackson Miller and talked to Dan Wallace about at least those. I think there were others. Uh, especially the stuff coming out for Fantasy Flight Games, where mm -hmm. it was left very ambiguous. They weren't told until later that it was going to wind up being this new canon. Although, I mean, this book, because of its setting and because of the characters and whatnot, there really isn't anything to butt up against. Um, I find there's not a lot butting up against things in Heir to the Jedi either. Tarkin, it's going to butt up against some things to an extent. 
um, for those who have already read Tarkin. But I got to say, in that case, it sort of streamlines things and makes things clearer. Like Tarkin's career finally makes sense instead of all kinds of different authors putting him in different positions at different ranks in different places at different times where it makes almost no sense whatsoever as you're going through the uh, uh, the expanded universe slash legends continuity. Uh, but yeah, it certainly was written in an inoffensive way, which for those who are fans of this could say, well, hey, this new canon has plenty of room to grow. It's laying some groundwork. It doesn't have to reference or butt up against other things. But those who are fans of legends who say, well, why did you have to get rid of the old way of doing things? Why do you have to have this new timeline? They're going to be able to look at this and say, well, if it didn't butt up against anything, why'd you have to trash legends, man? When we know the main reason they did it, of course, is the new films coming out, not necessarily the books. I do want to preface this with one thing before we get into the spoiler part, and that is out of the foreword by Dave Filoni. He says, uh, talking about what happens once uh, George Lucas is gone and whatnot. He says, so how do we move forward? And how do we, and you got to imagine me with the hat on, apparently. How do we move forward? And how do we make sure we get it right? Very simply, we trust in the Force and we trust one another. We came together as a group and found the best talent, people who, like you and me, love Star Wars and want to make it great, who want to capture the feeling that it gave all of us, that inspired all of us. More than at any other time in its existence, new Star Wars stories are being told every day. More important, the old concept of what is canon and what isn't is gone. And from this point forward, our stories and characters all exist in the same universe. The key creatives who work on the films, television, comic books, video games, and novels are all connected creatively for the first time in the history of the Star Wars universe. A New Dawn is a result of this method of story collaboration here at Lucasfilm. As executive producers of Star Wars Rebels, Greg Weissman, Simon Kinberg, and I, again Dave Filoni speaking, had input on the story and characters, working with author John Jackson Miller. I even got to make comments on the look of Kanan and Hera for the cover. Maybe a small detail to some, but it was exciting to be a part of that process and to know the characters would remain true to their intended design. I really hope you enjoy this story and that it enriches your experience and knowledge of the characters in Star Wars Rebels. There are still countless worlds to visit, countless aliens to meet, and with the incredible talent we have coming to work at Lucasfilm, the way forward looks clear. The concept of what is canon and what isn't is gone bullshit. Now we have what is canon and what is legends. How is that not what is canon and what isn't? I mean, ugh, come on. With that, we dive into the spoilers for the first story group approved canon, adult novel A New Dawn. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, so I guess a general gist of this story for those who haven't read it, who have been holding off on it but are listening to our take on it to decide whether or not to read it. The gist of this is you've got this planet called Gorse, and then you've got this moon called Cinda that circles it. And there's mining going on on the moon at this point. It used to be going on on the planet, now it's going on on the moon. The planet is tidally locked, a.k.a. the old Ryloth, and basically has half of it in darkness, which is where people live, half of it in bright sunshine and so forth. And they were doing some mining on the dark side of it, only to then shift it all to this moon of Cinda, which is a much nicer place, theoretically. And into this mix comes Denetrius Bidian, who is a fixer, so to speak, for the Empire. He is being sent in, basically, because he's this... He's sort of like 
the ultimate cybernetic manager type guy. He's there to basically put them back on schedule, to find new ways to motivate them, to beef up their production of the different minerals and crystals that they have. And these minerals are all needed by the Empire. And the idea is that he's going to you know, basically crack the whip on people and get the production going, but he has his own designs in the background. This is a man who wants to have uh, more power at the Imperial Court and has a rival out there who's trying to usurp his place within the Imperial Court. So as he's trying to do his job, there's also this measure of him trying to bring down this rival while also elevating his own status. As that is all going on, you've got Kanan, who has been in hiding for many, many years, essentially bouncing from place to place, not using the Force, trying not to be revealed as a Jedi, and he's working for one of these mining companies, basically. So he's going back and forth, being one of the people delivering explosives and delivering whatnot to this mining operation. He's just kind of laying low. Hera is in the mix, Hera Syndulla from Rebels, because she is on a mission there to meet with a rebel contact to find information about how that, that high-tech security firm on this planet is using all this new technology because if they can figure out how the Imperials run their security network here when it's so high-tech, they might be able to figure out a way to beat Imperial security and surveillance in other parts of the galaxy, essentially. There's not a rebel alliance yet, but she's working in tandem with presumably other rebel anti-Imperial factions. Uh, amidst all this, you also have a man by the name of Skelly, who basically is worried about what's going to happen if they keep using these explosives for mining. They don't want to make the moon, Cinda, unstable. It could be destroyed and wind up destroying the planet or parts of the planet along with it. And he spends most of his time trying to get word out about the facts that he's found that prove that he is right. This is a guy who uh, did work during the Clone Wars in a very similar area. So he's an expert in the field and a, someone with war experience, but he can't seem to get anybody to listen. You throw all these things together into a big pot and stir it up, that's the gist of what we're getting here with A New Dawn. A local story in which characters meet, and that's the main thrust of it, is getting those characters to meet. Uh, Vidian is a vicious guy, but he's also essentially a one-off villain. Yeah, the one-off aspect really kind of irked me. I mean, the rivalry between Vidian and Baron Dance was interesting. Dance could be our return villain, at least. I was really hoping Vidian was going to come back. Uh, the whole background of how he became who he was, how he got the robotics, who he was before he became Count Vidian, all that stuff was very interesting. And I kept thinking, this character could be diabolical. I mean, I, I don't know. There was just so many angles about the characters that I was really hoping they were going to explore. Skelly, on the other hand, started out very annoying. I didn't really care for him as a character. I was kind of, I honestly kept wondering why he kept showing up. It wasn't only until the story started growing did I start to appreciate the character himself and what he was there for. Uh, you know, one of the things, though, that, that, that struck right out to me, I believe it was like page seven. There was a line where Kenobi's talking to uh, Kanan. This is while he was a Padawan at the temple by another name even. And Kenobi says something about there are truths and there are legends touched with truth. And I, I had to hats off to John Jackson Miller for that. I mean, you know, that those type of references to legends in this regard may put some salt in some wounds. But I think I'm at a point now that I can look at it with some appreciation. So when I saw that, like, I don't know, there was something about it that got me to crack up. As far as the character of Vidian, the... He was an interesting character because he, you know, he wasn't really military as a lot of the villains we've seen in Star Wars are. They're, he's tied to the Empire, but he's really more tied to the Imperial Court. He's very vicious, but I guess when I look at the 
I guess, the scope of villains that we've seen before. I, I, I kind of felt like we'd seen him, or at least his type, or, you know... We obviously have Vader as a cybernetic villain. There were other ones, at, I think, you know, going farther back, all the way back to the original droids. They had Admiral Screed. I know there's a lot of other, you know, the vi- you could tell they're a villain because they've given up part of their humanity to mm-hmm. technology. And there I felt that it was a little hackneyed. You know, we've seen this before. We know that, you know, it, it's going to be his downfall. Now, it, it was kind of interesting, and I felt that the technology that they used for him was was unique. I mean, they and, and John Jackson Miller got into a lot of detail about how he used technology, which I thought was was interesting. But I also felt it was kind of like a almost like a a dig at you know big business and the way that i guess in this country we've had these corporations that have sort of dehumanized their business practices and they don't care about their workers as much they care about you know gross product and making money and you know just sucking the life out of whatever they need to. And I, I felt that was what Vidian represented, especially as he's going through this, these, these mines on Cinda and the, the different companies on Gorse. And I mean, that, that was interesting, but I just, I think when this was being written, there was a lot of media attention to these, these just awful business practices. Did, did that ring to either of you guys? Oh yeah, yeah. Being the econ teacher, this thing screamed you know, economic message. Economic message. Uh, I do. I do agree. Vidian was he was an interesting villain in that there's the twists and turns to his backstory. As I was reading this, I was taking notes, like I always do, little post-its and whatnot for the Star Wars timeline gold. And there's all these little hints we get of his background, only to find out near the end it's all bull. He made it up. Basically, he was a. I mean, more or less. Just a scientist, and he gets himself, you know, blowed up. And as he is nursing himself back to health, he slowly becomes cybernetic, and he starts using his connections and using his knowledge to build this power base for himself. And now he's back in play, building that power base as this new individual with this other former self of his still technically alive in the sense that he's out there signing off on all these projects under that old name, that this new version of himself wants to be like Anakin Skywalker giving Darth Vader permission to do something. <laughs> As Jedi Master left alive, I endorse this Sith Lord. <laughs> I mean, I like that aspect of it. And I like the moments that really, to me, felt almost Terminator-esque in the sense of, you know, in Terminator, one of the things, or in Predator, but especially Terminator, you get those moments where you see from inside the Terminator's head and you see it doing all the, like, the calculations and the recognizing faces and all. That was really, really cool. But at the same time, yeah, he felt like the type of villain, on the one hand, we kind of seen before the evil businessman, really kind of struck me as the type of villain that you would get in maybe an RPG scenario for Star mm-hmm. Wars. Um, and because of that, I don't think he rose to the threat level that someone like, say, the Inquisitor, or even Agent Callus, really has in Rebels. He was to be taken seriously, 
but you didn't really get the sense that this was someone on par with some of the other villains that, of course, these characters would wind up encountering later. Uh, there were some very heavy you know, economic overtones to it. I almost expected one of the villains to be named something like Ensign Romney or something. If there's like a jab <laughs> at, you know, because this was written fairly soon after the presidential elections and whatnot. Um, but at the same time, I mean, sci-fi is meant to reflect the times around it in many cases. Some of the best sci-fi does. And mm -hmm. this certainly feels like it's ringing true to that era and many of the frustrations in the media coverage of it. I just don't know how well that necessarily plays with Star Wars in general. I think for this being the first new canon novel, I think we were expecting something a little more dark side-ish, a little more heavy on the Imperial military side, and we got a guy who was very different than what most of the readers I think would probably expect. Then again, a story about mining was probably something that many readers didn't necessarily expect here. Uh, he's menacing, but he's not menacing in the same way. You know, you, his ships are not necessarily going to be emblazoned with the Imperial symbol. You expect them to have the Halliburton logo on them. <laughs> you see, Count Vidian was a character that I was intrigued right away. But once we found out that he once was Lemuel Tharsic, or Tharsa, uh, and that he was a safety officer, I, that angle really amped up my interest in the character. He was by the book for a long time, watching other people get corrupted and taking bribes and this, that, and the other thing. And it wasn't until he finally decided to take a bribe himself that he gets sick before he's even able to, to reap the benefits of going shady. And he, he contracts this disease that he had picked up from all his travels to all these shady places that were having these unsafe practices. So, I mean, it started out he was like a, a good guy, by the books kind of guy. But what happened to him and the way he ended up, his body was being eaten alive by this stuff and they were only able to salvage just barely anything of them that was left. Uh, he was able to originally start communicating with the droid that was there. And then through that, he was able to intellectually, through the economic side of thing, take over all these corporations and stuff. That side of how he ended up growing. You know, and, 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 and then later when he shows up and he beats some of the aides to death, it was like, once I knew all that about the character, my interest level in him as a villain went up exponentially. Ah, uh, see, there you go. It, that's something that, that I hadn't even thought about. Uh, I had said blowed up. Yeah, he wasn't blown up. I think that was part of the, the false backstory. It is the fact yes. that he was around all that, all the, the, the unsafe things that he was trying to stop and wound up becoming ill from. I, yeah, I, I do remember that was kind of a cool angle, a nice, you know, it it turns him into the villain. It's it's very much like what we're seeing, I guess, in Gotham with certain aspects of the Riddler or the guy that we know is going to become the Riddler's character. You know, it's things that he does trying to be nice. It's constantly backfiring, and eventually it's going to shape him into someone else. I will say also, this guy really kind of had a Thrawn-esque feel to me to a degree by the end of the book. Uh, there was one of those things that really kind of bothered me in some of the last of Timothy Zahn's Thrawn-based books, like Choices of One especially, was that Thrawn could basically figure out anything. He could predict today what you're going to do five years from now, plan for it, and beat you five years from now. It was <laughs> kind of ridiculous how much of a master chess player he became to the point where he was basically a Star Wars god just without the ability to keep himself from dying at the hands of a no-gry. Um, it's just one of those things that really started to, to grate against me. So I'm always a little bit wary now when characters seem like they are the master planners 
that can figure out everything. Even to a degree, Darth Plagueis and Darth Sidious in the Darth Plagueis novel, they reached close to the point where, unless you could say they're drawing on the dark side and making their predictions and visions and such, you're kind of like, really? You're able to plan that far ahead in such detail? Vidian almost reaches that point. But I think still does it at somewhat of a believable level by the time we get to the end. This idea that his whole scheme has been about bringing down Danth. He's going to destroy part of his background now that he knows that Danth is looking into it. Because Danth got the uh, one of the other officers aboard the Ultimatum, the Star Destroyer, to go looking through that uh, uh, security company's files and such for information on Tharsa, his former self. He has the, the hospice destroyed, and now here he is. He's basically sending a lie. We want the beggar twists in the book, being that the the plan becomes that if you can't mine well enough to meet the emperor's quotas, that Danth keeps convincing the emperor to to raise and raise and raise. That instead of just mining Cinda, you blow it up and bring ships in to harvest all the minerals and such that they need from space after the explosion, kind of like you would with asteroid mining and whatnot. And our heroes try to go in there and stop this from happening by sending false data that says, oh, well, the test didn't work. There's actually not enough to be mined if you try to do it that way. So don't bother to save the people back home. Only to find when they get there that Vidian's already sent fake information. That he's basically saying that there really is only about a year or two's worth of the mineral there. But he's claiming there's, what is it, a thousand years, two thousand years or whatever mm -hmm. it is worth of the mineral there. Right after he has basically agreed that after a year, he's going to hand over this operation to Danth, to his rival. So he gets to make the profit and make himself look good in front of the emperor by bringing in this mineral in these huge, huge numbers. And by the time it's in Danth's hands, it's going to run out. Danth has to try to explain why there, there are not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years more of this material sitting there like there was supposed to be. And eventually, once that's all said and done, once Danth is ruined... He's even gotten some of Damp's mining droids from Mustafar that deal with heavy heat that he's trying to retrofit so that he could go to the bright side of Gorse and do mining there because he was one who made sure that when it was discovered that actually there's a lot more to be mined on the, the light side that nobody lives on of Gorse relative to on the moon or on the dark side, he, he kind of covered it up so he could go back to it later. Uh, that, to me, it's a master plan. It requires a lot of things falling in place. It's very Thrawn-esque, but I don't think it ever went beyond the bounds of believability in that sense. It was complicated. You really had to follow some of these conversations to make sense of what the heck was going on, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like some of the bits of Knight Errant that John Jackson Miller wrote. But I think it was still believable, and it made the book by the end feel like there was more depth to it than it felt like for maybe the first half when we didn't really know what scheming was going on. It just seemed like a very straightforward plot for Vidian. What'd you guys think? Well, I mean, I had, I had no trouble following, but I felt it was really convoluted. I mean, you know, this whole thing where he was going to, you know, set this up and, and, you know, then hand, hand over the, you know, hand over the the mining to the he. It's his underling, Dan, where he's going to actually hand over the mining operation to Danth. Uh, Danth is his underling who keeps trying to usurp him, as you said. I mean, I just felt like it was at the point that that was coming out. It was need needlessly complicated. I think at that point you were kind of getting away and. 
you know, the other thing that Vidian did is he he goes to great lengths to dis, to try to destroy his backstory because what we learn, and I'm not sure if you mentioned this, is that when Vidian, as his former self, gets sick, he's actually on Gorse when that happens, and he's in this hospital on Gorse. And one of the first things he does when he gets there is he he basically has the the uh, Imperial forces that he's co-opted blow it up to get rid of his you know any records of him you had said that Hera was there to get the data cube from Heto and eventually after Heto is arrested Zaluna does that but that was not actually Hera's original mission there that was sort of a side thing her original mission was to find out what Vidian was doing because the Empire seems to be wanting a lot more of this mineral, and she's trying to figure out why that is and why mm-hmm. they sent somebody as important as Vidian to go in and fix and streamline the process. And you're kind of hinted at it. One of the things that they say is that the Empire is trying to almost consolidate its military hold on the galaxy by producing more Star Destroyers. and. Skelly at one point, you know, when he's kind of going through his whole conspiracy theory to Hera, he's talking about that the Empire isn't satisfied with just Star Destroyers. They're starting to produce Super Star Destroyers, so they need some more of this mineral. Um, I found that, you know, that more kind of appealing when you when you think about the the broader you know, sort of timeline of the development of the New Order than this whole thing with the, you know, the political intrigue. I like that, but it seemed as though, uh, I mean, I, I guess I sort of, I think of that sort of part and parcel with the whole thing about uh, Vidian and his own personal quest to hide his background, because they talk about how he's done this in several other systems, but it's like his career was leading up to being able to do this, and as soon as he had the authority to do what he needed to do to go to Gorse and take over that mining operation, it's like he jumped at the chance, and there was that question of, well, why is he doing this now? Why is this such a big priority to him? So I, I see the Imperial thing. I guess the Imperial thing never jumped out at me as something that was big for this moment because I figured they probably have operations like this all over the place. Uh, but then I, I just kind of thought of it as, okay, well, why it's happening here, that's more of a Vidian backstory thing. But I don't know. I mean, even laying those two out side by side, I still think it's... I almost think that's too broad of a motivation to make for a decent uh, villain of sorts for the characters to go up against. The the Imperial military's drive for these goods. And I say that thinking about Heir to the Jedi. Because in Tarkin, you may not be rooting for Tarkin, though Tarkin is the central character. He's kind of the hero of the piece. Uh, But there's this group of rebels he's up against. And they have faces and names, and there are there are clear protagonists and antagonist roles, even if we might want to flip them morally. Here, the Empire is this big military machine, and they got to stop the mining operation. It's sort of a faceless enemy that feels, I don't know, less intriguing, I guess, to me, than Vidian, because at least Vidian is an individual with their own motivations, their own schemes and such, so it puts a face to it. But I think about Heir to the Jedi... I don't think once in that book, Heir to the Jedi ever gives us a face of an enemy. It's always just the Empire. Let's not get caught. And that's something that has come to be a worry for me early Mm -hmm. on in this new canon is are they really going to be creating 
enemies worthy of the characters that we're dealing with, or is it all going to be character exploration where a lot of times it's either a throwaway villain like Vidian, right? Because spoiler alert, we're already in the spoiler section. He's dead by the time this is over. Or are we going to wind up with stories like Heir to the Jedi where there really isn't much of a villain? When are we going to get a situation where the villain and the protagonist feel like they're on somewhat equal footing? I mean, I guess you could sort of say the Marvel comic stuff, but the first couple issues of that are out, and basically the villain is Vader. We know nothing's going to happen to him. It's the film characters up against him so far. Nobody knew. We know what's going to happen to them. I've yet to feel real peril of any kind in the new story group canon. Well... Outside of Rebels, outside of the cartoon show. But in print, I've yet to see anything that feels like true peril. Well, I would would agree with that. I haven't read Heir to the Jedi yet. um, And um, hopefully Lords of the Sith will give us some. But I think, I'm hoping that they take some of the characters of that that they have in the rebel show i mean the inquisitor my my feeling is is that there probably isn't just one inquisitor i would think that there probably is like a group of them and there's certainly going to be more isb agents like callus going through the empire so if they can develop those now that they they've been very successful in the rebel series that would be something that I would really like to see them sort of bridge into the literary angle. I kept getting lost. I, I mean, granted, it was part of the slow reading process of having a three-year-old that's, that's attached to my leg all the time. But the plot of what it was doing and all that stuff, it wasn't until I got towards the very end that I was really starting to appreciate it. But I had to go back and kind of fill in gaps that I had forgotten along the way. Uh, one thing, though, about Vidian that I thought was funny right out the get-go, uh, you know, I was taking notes when I first started writing uh, reading the book and it was that Vidian's wearing a black kilt <laughs> I was like really like interesting John like you're gonna put him in a dress okay uh you know the character again I was interested by the character from the get-go and then once I heard Mark Thompson voicing the character he took on a whole new villainous life I was really hoping he was gonna be a Nominor style character that kept coming up uh you know Nathan you mentioned the the throwaway villains and stuff and the early Bantam days felt like that. Like there was never a villain that was around for long. And I kind of really hope that, you know, maybe Sloan is the character out of this. that will that'll come back. You know, I mean, that's where I want some relevance. You know, the continuity doesn't have to be very thick, but it would be nice that characters kind of led over. One of the things I really loved about the new Jedi order was the fact that characters like Gavin Darklighter would show up and Coran Horn and, you know, little throwaway characters that were all throughout all these other books suddenly had bigger roles and were more mentioned in the books next to Luke Han and Leia. And I don't know. I mean, I would love to see this new canon do something like that with the villains as well. Like you said, put them on an equal footing. You know, it's interesting that you bring up Sloan because that was one that it was kind of an interesting thing. And I think possibly the only point, well, one of the two points in this book that I saw a break from a really a a break from the old canon. And -hmm. that was the idea that there was a female um, Star Destroyer captain, which is something that the old canon uh, Legends continuity uh, basically said that they, you know, the Empire was very sexist, and yeah. they they didn't have a lot of females. Which also was another point. Later in the book, there's there's a scene in the uh, asteroid belt cantina where there's actually a female stormtrooper. 
Page 138. Yep, there were three of them. Uh, three female and one male, which was interesting that there was a, a, a female dominant group, in fact. And that just it, it, it shocked me because I don't think we've ever seen that. Now, we've heard – well, there are rumors that in The Force Awakens there's going to be female stormtroopers. But I know that I can only think of one other mention of that ever in – a Star Wars story, and I think that was the Legacy comic series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What they did, it seemed like what they did was they built up this sexist mantra around the Empire back, I think, in the RPG. And then they used that so much as the background of, wow, why is Admiral Natasi Dalla, who didn't have a first name for years, why is she so awesome? Because the Empire was super sexist, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And then later they were backpedaling some. I think it's the Essential Guide to Warfare has some information on female stormtroopers. But that was more – it seemed to be growing out as a response to women with with feminized – that's the right word um, – stormtrooper outfits in things like the 501st Legion. And the costuming angle of these and wanting to really sort of address the female fan base more that for a lot of times had been uh, been sort of given short shrift, so to speak. Um, you mentioned – I mean, kind of playing off what I was saying about wanting the villains to come back and wanting there to be sort of a face to them. You made the comparison to Heir to the Empire. And I think the early Bantam days are a good counterpoint to this. Because it feels like this book, Tarkin, uh, Heir to the Jedi to an extent, um, really everything we're getting, except maybe Rebels, in this new story group canon, so far at least, have been stories where it's here's a film character or a Rebels character. Throw them in. This is their story. Now, by the end of the story, pretty much everyone around them, we are clearing the decks. They're either dead, they're gone their own way. We don't expect to see them again for whatever reason. Um, it's just those characters and the other ones are gone, and the chances of seeing them again are really, really slim. Unless there's maybe a flashback tale or something like that before the characters part ways or whatever it is that happens. Uh, in Vidian's case here, before he croaks. And I think about the Thrawn trilogy. It gave us not just Thrawn, who could be seen later on in flashbacks and such, but it gave us Mara Jade. It gave us Talon Card. I think about very soon after that, the Jedi Academy trilogy and all the students that it added into that universe. The early Bantam Star Wars books, the early Dark Horse comics, felt like they were building a universe. This really doesn't yet, which is shocking to me. I think it's just sort of the nature of the story they were trying to tell in the book. Because usually John Jackson Miller is one of the absolute best Star Wars writers at building eras. Knights of the Old Republic, Knight Errant, uh, Lost Tribe of the Sith. I mean, the guy can take an era that's sort of vaguely defined, maybe in other stories or just by Lucasfilm before they say, have at it, and create this huge fleshed out era with new places, new characters, new dynamics that we either haven't seen before or they're nice new spins on things we've seen before and really draw us in. Which is, to a degree, what those early Star Wars books from Bantam had to do and things like Dark Empire and Tales of the Jedi had to do. But nothing so far in this new story group canon outside of the Rebels cartoon show seems like they're making an effort to do that. Not that they haven't done it, not like they've tried and failed. They just mm -hmm. don't seem like they're making an attempt to do anything even remotely like that at this point, which kind of, of boggles my mind. I would expect that one of the things they'd want to do right up front will be to build the context that everything's in with this big sweeping tale of these epic stories. 
And they're focusing instead on character studies, which are nice, which are interesting, and which are great at getting us inside those characters' heads. I love Heir to the Jedi, I love Tarkin, and I love getting into Kanan's head here. But there's something to be said for world building, and it seems like they're not doing it. Am I wrong in this, or am I just, you know, am I expecting more than should be there? Well, I'm wondering if that's because these books that we're getting now were done before, or at least, you know, the majority of the work on them was done before the EU reboot. You know, they, they, I mean, it, very clear in this book, even more so in Tarkin, they're building on what's already out there. They're referencing it. They're, they're using species and events and, you know, other contexts that have already been established. You know, these books were written when they didn't feel like they needed to do that universe building. Well, I, I don't know. I kind of agree a little with Nathan on this because it, it seems like before they said we're going to split and make the EU Legends, the books that were coming out like Razor's Edge and and, and uh, the ones of that trilogy and stuff were very continuity free. It does seem like there's this this thought that good storytelling is being hampered by continuity and so continuity should be damned so we could tell the good stories. And I've been talking with other people on our Facebook page about this as well, because, I mean, I think that's a step in the wrong direction. Well, I don't think that they need to be too hammered to all the continuity, uh, but bringing characters back and stuff, those kind of things would be nice if they were to do that more. And it did seem that the last few legend stories and stuff were also stepping away from the heavy referencing and stuff of that nature. I mean, they're definitely not referencing as many things as they could have. Well, you know, I think I kind of agree with both of you to an extent there. Uh, Jonathan, I do agree that that may be what hampered the fact that they were writing this in a time where it wasn't clear that they were going to need to create the context for it because at first they thought it was going to be part of you know, the broader Legends continuity back when it was just the Star Wars official continuity. Um, but at the same time, yeah, Mark, you're right. It seems like the last few novels that they were putting out, Razor's Edge, Honor Among Thieves, even Heir to the Jedi before it was meant to be part of this, uh, back when they were all part of that Empire and Rebellion series, it really does feel like they were going for, you know, let's get people psyched because, hey, it's these film characters in the era you love. And let's not really reference much of anything, have it connect to much of anything. Uh, same thing to an extent with Brian Wood's Star Wars Volume 2 for Dark Horse, before we mm -hmm. have what I guess is now technically Marvel Star Wars Volume 2, going back over the stuff that they had had before. Um... One thing continuity-wise, though, that was really cool happens right at the beginning of this book, before any of the part that we're talking about. Mark, I know you particularly have been psyched about it because of the aspect of how it connects to something we see early on in Rebels. Absolutely. I mean, the the opening, we have a message that Kenobi is giving from the temple, the one that he went into the temple, they fought their way in, and he switched it. I, when I read it, I don't know, I, I heard it in McGregor's voice, that whole, you are my brother feel to it. And it's, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Republic forces have been turned against the Jedi. Avoid Coruscant. Avoid detection. Stay strong. And may the force be with you. And it had a very somber feel to it. And then immediately I was thinking, that's not what we got in Rebels. That's a totally different message than what we got in Rebels. But page 70, it's, it's from Kanan, and he talks about the text portion of Kenobi's warning. The text portion. Hmm. So he did send two, which made me wonder then, do holocrons work as communicators? I know from Legends, holocrons was a lost technology. They were not making more holocrons. That seems to be something that is not the case in canon. So I'm very curious as to the holocron aspect and stuff. But finding out that there was a text message as well as the verbal one, 
was something that I was like, oh, that explains a lot. I like that. And I like the fact that they take that moment to, to really give us a connection to Kanan. Because Kanan, at the point that this book came out, we'd seen in previews for Rebels, we had no idea what was coming other than he's voiced by that dude from Wing Commander. And I, I know what you did last summer. Oh, God. And then it turned out to be such a great character and such a great voice performance. But at this time, we didn't really know what to expect in most respects. And they give us that connection because they, we find out, one, his name isn't Kanan Jarrus. That's essentially an alias. His name was Caleb Doom originally, oddly enough, Doom. And he winds up talking to Obi-Wan about the message. And he's the one that gives Obi-Wan the idea for the warning message in the first place. They talk... It's him as, as a, a Padawan with Depa Bilaba there as well, or right before he's a Padawan, uh, with Depa Bilaba there, uh, before presumably the stuff that we're going to see in that Kanan comic series that's going to be coming out from Marvel. And they're just discussing, you know, how there's this, this warning thing. Oh no, if something were to happen at the Jedi Temple on Coruscant, how would you call people there to save the day? And he brings up the whole, well, what if you want to... Tell people to go away. What if you want to warn people away instead of drawing them in? Could you do that? And that apparently is an idea that sticks inside Obi-Wan's mind so that eventually when we get to that point of Revenge of the Sith, that's part of why he goes and sends out the message, why he thinks to go and send out the message. Now, that is, in I honestly think it's one of the first times, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems like one of the first times that in the new story group canon, we have been given a reason that explains something in the films. Not that's connected to it or reference to it, but in which something that happens in a book or a comic is directly affecting how we view something in the films because there is a causal connection that didn't exist previously in that Legends continuity. Very much like getting the Tales of books and the Legends continuity gave us all these backgrounds on the Cantina patrons or the people in Jabba's palace and let us know why they were there. Here's one of those types of connections. And to me, that immediately gave me more of an interest in Kanan as a character. I was already kind of mm -hmm. interested because I wanted to know what we'd expect from Rebels. But to have it turn out that he, in a sense, without realizing it, he may have saved a lot of Jedi lives. And you got to wonder if at some point he's going to mention that in the show or he's going to allow that to be something to bolster him up as opposed to the fact that so many died and he couldn't save anyone can pull him down. That was an amazing moment. I'm glad that prelude or that prologue was there. Yeah, there was a lot about that. Uh, another telling thing right before that, uh, it, it mentions the Sith. He goes, uh, he'd lead the valiant battle against the Sith, the legendary evil counterpart to the Jedi. Of course, the Sith hadn't been seen in a thousand years, and he knew of no shadow of their return. Which, I found that very interesting, because Kenobi's murder of the Sith was completely kept hidden from the Padawans. None of them seem to have known anything about the Sith's return. Darth Maul, all of that. I thought that was an interesting twist in and of itself. Granted, they are a younger class, so maybe it was just something that they just kept from the young Padawans. Uh, but it was interesting, nonetheless. There was a lot about that beginning that had me interested. I mean, heck, the first line in this book was Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I was just, I was tickled about that going in. Well, okay, now I have a question about that, Mark. You know, you say that you know, maybe they didn't tell the Padawans, but I'm wondering how many of the the knights in general, or how many of how many of the Jedi Order actually knew that Obi Wan had fought a Sith, or that Dooku was a Sith at this point, because 
you know, we, we've seen the Jedi obviously play things very close to the chest. They didn't want in Attack of the Clones, Yoda basically says we we can't tell the Senate that our ability to use the force has been diminished. They, you know, they, they, they're they're very secretive and I wouldn't see why they wouldn't keep that up even in their own order. Well, it's interesting because that goes right along with what we saw in the Clone Wars. We talked about this on Rebels Roundtable when we were dealing with Season 6 of the Lost Missions of Clone Wars, kind of transitioning into Rebels, because there were repeatedly instances where, oh, it turns out that Dooku is Tyrannus. Uh Uh-oh, he helped order the clone army. Our enemy created an army for us? We gotta keep this a secret. Wait, there's hidden programming in the clones? We gotta keep this secret. Um, That was not something that the Legends continuity really played into. In fact, it seemed like almost everybody knew the story of, of Obi-Wan versus Maul and stuff like that, for instance. Mm-hmm. There was, it was a very open concept when it came to the Jedi Order. It seems like as Lucas developed it, those references within the films became more and more a way of life in a lot of ways for the Jedi. We'll find, eventually when we do a review of Tarkin, there's a passage in the Tarkin novel that's kind of in passing that explains to a degree some of the reasons why the Jedi's powers there on Coruscant were diminished over time. Um, but in the Legends continuity, we got nothing like that. So it's an interesting line of speculation. It's easy to say, well, of course the Jedi, you know, would have made sure that people knew about that. Of course that would have been a big deal at the time. How could they have kept that hushed up? That's Mm -hmm. just not what the Jedi Order is. But we got to rewind and say, well, yeah, but what do we know about the Jedi Order anymore? This is a new canon, a new continuity. They, uh, well, and Mark said this earlier. Mark said, you know, the old canon is gone. The new one is there. Let's backtrack because I'm sure people are going to be griping because we may have people listening to the show for the first time because of this or listening because of the other feed. It is not so much that one canon was shuffled aside and another was put in its place. There had been an official continuity built out of a core of canon and add-ons that were allowed to expand upon it over the years that were considered the official continuity. But that canon was the part that was inviolable unless Lucasfilm came in and said something would change. What they essentially did was they came in and said, we are now adding to the canon, and because of that, we have to wipe away this other stuff that was never on par with the films and the Clone Wars, the T-Canon, G-Canon stuff anyway. So essentially, it's this alternate universe, kind of the way that Lucas always looked at it. And now, we have new stuff added to the canon that before now was just the cartoon series, the Clone Wars, and the films. It's now going to include new films, new books, new comics, and that sort of thing. It's not one canon for another. That's using canon as if to essentially mean continuity or timeline, um, mm-hmm. uh, the way that Mark had put it. Yes, canon means something different now than it used to, as Filoni said. Uh, their new way is different. Uh, when we talk about the difference, we're talking continuity. And in this continuity, we don't have much to go on as far as the Jedi and their practices in that era, except the movies and the Clone Wars. Yeah, a lot of people will say that that the EU was reboot. And as I like to say it, Star Wars was reboot. Everything I know about Legends still exists as as it was. All my knowledge is still applied to Legends. As for the backstories for canon, that's wide open. So that was one of the interesting things. So, example, there is no such thing as a canonical Mara Jade. Never was. There was an official continuity Mara Jade. She's in the Legends timeline. We've yet to see one in canon, whether in expanded stories now that canon is growing, or in the original canon but the, the terminology is something we got to keep straight that's why the star wars timeline gold is there in part check out the appendix 
<laughs> One of the cool things, though, is right away on the preface page, John Jackson Miller points out a lot of really cool things. And the one thing that I really thought was nice was that Palpatine is still secretly a Sith. That was one of the things that I always was wondering about was did the galaxy at large, you know, know that Palpatine was a Sith or did they always assume that openly Vader was the only Sith Lord and that very few actually ever knew about Palpatine's role as Sidious. And I like the fact that they're establishing that right out in the preface page. I mean, it was bam right there. He's still secretly a Sith. He's running it as the emperor. And I don't know. I mean, that was one of those things that that for me, it was nice to have that established and set forward going straight in, because in Legends, that was something that we found out over time. And we did get that answer. But this one was boom. They're just right out in the open with that. So it's kind of nice. Gives you that feeling that story group has said, you know, this is one of the testaments, you know, Palpatine's a Sith, but very few know about it. I would say, though, Mark, for what it's worth, this time they have the luxury of being able to decide whether the galaxy knows he's a Sith or not up front. Remember, Really, until the prequels came out, and until we knew about Darth Sidious and we see Phantom Menace, we knew that the Emperor was this evil dark side dude who was the master of Vader. But we never had the term Dark Lord of the Sith applied to him, really, or Sith Lord applied to him. Dark Lord of the Sith was always a title for Vader, and we had no idea how that applied. We didn't even know until Phantom Menace came around that Darth was a title, not Vader's name. So you had about what, eight years, give or take, of Expanded Universe stories for the Legends continuity before any of that started to become clear. So you had a lot of storytelling that kind of just went its own way with it, not knowing what to do, and then we found out later, oh, crap, we got to change it. Kind of like Jedi being married and, and, and attachments weren't forbidden, and then they were and all that kind of stuff. Uh, only two Sith at a time, uh, only certain colors of lightsabers, all stuff that, as the prequels appeared as new canon the Legends continuity or the official continuity at the time had to change and keep up with. So here they know it going into it. I think it's a, I'm not sure if the comparison is entirely valid. Uh, but speaking of Caden, Jonathan. Okay. Well, I think one of the things that I really did enjoy about this book was the way that Kanan was portrayed. You know, I almost refer to him, you know, as a recovering Jedi, this and being a psychologist or you know, looking at that was really what drew me into this book. This is somebody who honestly, I think felt betrayed by the force. At mm -hmm. one point he, you know, he's basically said, I, he doesn't want to deal with the force and the force keeps creeping back into his life. And he was upset that the Jedi, you know, taught him how to use the force, how to channel the force, how to listen to the force, but it never told him and never taught him how to turn it off. And yeah. that's what he wants. He doesn't want to be that Jedi. He hangs on to his lightsaber simply because it's, you know, the last connection to that old life. And obviously he hangs on to the holocron, although I don't think he talks about it in the book. Now, this is somebody who through the course of this, this story finally, to some degree, accepts, you know, his Jedi heritage, accepts using the Force. There's a couple of points early in the book where he uses it to save himself in an explosion, and then later he uses it to save Hera. But for the most part, you know, he he doesn't want that part of him anymore. And I found that just really, really interesting because you go from the the beginning, the prologue of this book where he's, you know, uh, pre-Padawan and he's he sees his whole life 
out, you know, stretched out before him. And then later when he's talking about, you know, the force didn't save any of the Jedi. So what use is it? It, I don't know. I just, that was really, really engaging for me. Mm -hmm. No, Kanan's definitely a conflicted character at the start. I really enjoyed that aspect about him. I mean, not only was he running explosives back and forth from the mining operations in the home base and stuff, he was a bartender part-time. Uh, there was a scene on page 124 where Kanan's in the bar and he yells, Now hear this! He yelled to the dozens of patrons crowding the big cantina. I have had enough of today! Anyone who hassles me goes to the med center! Vampire, close the med center! Someone yelled, Correction! Anyone who hassles me goes to the morgue! That is all! And the way that he was presented, you know, all the way through the beginning of this book and stuff, and the way he kept, you know, there was a definite physical attraction to Hera. I mean, not just her voice, but her eyes, everything about her. And then later at the end, when he finally figures out what her ship is, he realizes he had a, you know, a a, a, a strong one for the, the ghost itself, too, because he'd seen that at the beginning. I mean, there was a definite pull to Hera in almost every single aspect, as well as the conflict that was going on with the character and his... I don't know, the conflict between him being kind of like a, a a rogue like Han Solo and being the good guy that he's fighting. You know, as you as you said, the part where he wants to shut off the force, the part where he I mean, he he drinks a lot. There was that aspect of the character that I found was profoundly interesting. I mean, as as a struggling alcoholic who hasn't touched alcohol in a long time, I mean, that subject is still one that's prevalent in my life. And seeing him kind of you know, running from his problems through the drink as well was an interesting twist to the character. Showed the the levels of of how far he had dropped, you know, in society. I thought that was an interesting twist as well. Well, shoot, the man's also he's he's kind of a love him and leave him, bang and blame kind of guy. Um, because he talks about how you know, well, he hasn't been forming attachments in a relationships, but he talks about you know using women, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is. I mean, he, in a lot of ways, he's worse than Han starts off when we meet him. Sure. Uh, he, he is kind of that roguish character in lieu of a smuggler type of character. Um, he has a great uh, set of lines in here. It's actually, you know, kind of a preview here. The Star Wars Timeline Gold's timeline for the story group canon is always going to start with a different quote or set of quotes out of the, the, the new canon, just like uh, the, uh, the Legends continuity has quotes from it. And the quote that I chose this time is it's Kanan and a bartender, or a bar patron. And he says, uh, I've had enough of today. Anyone who hassles me goes to the mid-center. The Empire closed the mid-center. Correction, anyone who hassles me goes to the morgue. And that's not something you would expect to see coming from a Jedi. Um, it certainly puts him at a lower place than I expected to find him here. Because, I mean, you think about the Legends continuity. It's funny, and it's almost like a running gag within Legends, you know, you know, when I am gone, the last of the Jedi will you be. You know, the Emperor hunted down and destroyed the Jedi Knights, and how it's such a big deal that Luke needs to be trained and everything. But it seems like every time you turn over a rock in that continuity, there's another Jedi who survived Order 66, who survived the Jedi Purges, as they were called before Order 66 got a name. Uh, especially in the RPG stories. Constantly out of the woodwork. Here's a Jedi, here's a Jedi, there's a Jedi. It's almost like Oprah is sitting back just giving out Jedi powers to everybody. <laughs> you get some powers and you get the Force and you get the Force. Um, and this time, hopefully, they're going to make it something where Surviving Order 66 really does make someone special. It's not something that seems like it was happening all over the galaxy, but for him to have made it through was a big deal. 
But in those other portrayals, a lot of times it was sort of a vague looking back. And in many cases, again, to be fair, because they didn't know how the Jedi Purge happened, they just knew that it did. It took Revenge of the Sith and subsequent stories to really give detail to it. But you had Jedi who were in hiding, afraid of using their powers, etc., etc. But it, a lot of times never really got to that personal level. Because it was almost like a story trope in Star Wars that was just used as a ready-made background for a character, and then you go and give them their other character traits. And that's just sort of the backdrop for what's going on. With Kanan, it's really at his core. And we talked about this early on with Spark of Rebellion, but I think it probably bears a little bit of discussion here as well, since this is you know, a separate show than Rebels Roundtable, even though many of the listeners do cross over. I find that this book, the one place where it is essential, it's not essential to understand what's going on with Rebels. But if you really want to get inside the character and have a better understanding of Kanan, in that sense it is essential. I find that the Stover effect hits, right? When I read this and then watched Rebels, my appreciation and understanding of the Kanan character and what I read into some of his actions is much deeper than what I would have without it. He's only yeah. hinted at some of this darkness in the show. So for both of you, is it the same thing? And is there a downside? to that going into Rebels with this background in mind now that it's all canon. I don't know about backs or bad side to it, you know, I mean, but there's definitely the personal story aspect. I mean, I would say the, the biggest characters that walked away with personal story depth were Kanan, Skelly, Zaluna, Sloan, and Vidian. With Kanan and Vidian being the and bigger of the And they killed team. all of those except Kanan, or got him off the table. Yeah, or, or or shuffled them off. I mean, I'm, actually, out of that, only two of them are, are officially 100% dead. I mean, three of them still survive. But I don't know. I mean, for me, it was like Vidian had some aspects and stuff where they went into his point of view and stuff, and they would explain things like how he would wipe out uh, d the data recordings that he would collect of the day. They would talk about how he would uh, be able to do communications with other people and stuff. Later, there was a scene where the group was looking at things through his eyes. So he was looking at a hologram, but in his eyes, the person on the hologram didn't look the blue. He looked all like normal and stuff like there, there were some really cool angles about Vidian's character that was moving Sloan, what was driving her Zaluna, what she was afraid of and Skelly, you know, his major fears that were pushing him. I mean, the fact that Skelly wanted to get to Vidian almost all the way through the story. When he finally did, it was like, he realized the big mistake it was. I mean, there were so many aspects of that, that that I think kind of played into the mystery of things. It was like you had to wait for the buildup and then you didn't quite realize there was a mystery until about halfway through. And then you were like, oh, there's more going on here than I was aware. I mean, I don't know. The book really got a lot better towards the end. I mean, once they started talking about being inside Vidian's chambers and how the chamber was created and all that stuff, by that point, I was really hooked in the book. But up until that point, I was confused a lot. You totally, we should probably pick up with that after but you Jonathan didn't get a chance to answer the question and you didn't answer the question of how did the how did how did knowing this about Kanan how does it affect your watching of Rebels and to any degree is it a bad thing that a lot of our background for Kanan and understanding the character comes out of here yeah I didn't have much on that I think I can answer this you know this was something I kind of you know kind of went back and forth on and we discussed this in, you know, on, on the other show in Rebels Roundtable that I kind of wish in some ways I had seen Spark of Rebellion before I read this book because 
I did know a lot about Hera and a lot about Kanan kind of going into it. And I knew, you know, that, that Kanan was kind of that hiding that, that part of him. And, you know, the big reveal in Spark of Rebellion is when Kanan, you know, lights his lightsaber to when he's fighting, uh, you know, the ISB agent Kalos and the, and the stormtroopers on Kessel. And this was supposed to be like, you know, this, this big sort of reveal. And I don't know. I mean, I think it gives the character of Kanan a lot more depth and it really does explain why some of the things go on in rebels that have gone on. Um, another thing about, you know, having read this book before, you know, seeing any of the Rebels episodes, you just, you understand so much more of, of the dynamic between the two of them. And, you know, if you go and back and listen to the, some of those episodes, Barrett, who hasn't read this book, is kind of going, oh, wait a minute. So the ghost is Hera's ship. And, oh, this is the, rela-. you know, he didn't get a lot of that, that Nathan, you and I had that knowledge going into. And, I guess it it does it it very much changes your perspective on the series. I would say it changed my perspective in a positive way. I was glad that I read it beforehand. I don't think I would have wanted to do it the other way around because, I mean, we knew Kanan was a Jedi. All the previews were like, focus your fire on on the Jedi and so forth. I mean, that wasn't a big. They, they made a big deal about him being the cowboy Jedi and everything. So that reveal. I, I'm not sure that that reveal would have given me that same emotional holy crapness, that chill down my spine when he finally does stand up and activate it and, you know, show the world his secret, had I not seen how much he was trying to hide it here. You know, how much he was trying point. to stay away from it. Um, I think the, the, the bad side, the, the thing that sticks in my mind is possibly a negative, is, and this is something Mark and I have talked about on the show, and that is that in the olden days of the Legends continuity, you could ignore the books. People who despised the EU or just didn't want to read stuff, they just wanted to enjoy Star Wars on film and that was it. Didn't need to read a book, read a comic, play a video game to understand the broader tapestry that was out there because you knew that whatever was in a book or a comic, a video game, whatever, it was not going to come back and show up in an episode of a TV show, it wasn't going to show up in a film. If it did, it'd be like Ayla Secura, where it's just the character look plucked out. Quindlin Voss, where they take his personality and completely mind wipe him and replace him with a beach bum. Hey, look, here he is. Um, it was sort of one of those things where if it did come over, it had its own spin on it. So you didn't need the expanded universe background or the Legends background to make sense of what you were seeing. It made the EU, effectively, for many people... Uh, dispensable in, in a very real way. Now, if everything really is equally canon and we are meant to see things get built in one that are referenced in another as an equal footing, which means we may not get much of Kanan's background in the show if it's already covered here, doesn't it now present the idea that those who could have scoffed at reading Star Wars books and comics because that's not real or as real in the past are now in a position where they're stuck. If they want the whole story, they have to read it. And, you know, I enjoy that sort of thing. But there are going to be fans out there who don't want to do that. 
And maybe that's why they didn't get into Legends in the first place. Uh, does this create an obligation almost on the fan to have to be a consumer of more than just Star Wars in video form now? I would say no. It doesn't force the fan to read the comics, read the book. Sure, it'll expand their knowledge and possibly increase their enjoyment, but I don't think it's necessary. And again, to bring Barrett back up, he has expressed to us on the show that he's not interested in, you know, going back and, and gathering all this extra knowledge per se. And he's still enjoying the hell out of the series. I think that if Lucasfilm was to insist on fans to, to understand the show would have to be like, if they don't read a new Dawn, they are not going to understand spark of rebellion. That would be stupid because they, they could very easily alienate that type of fan that you were describing, Nathan. Well, I would absolutely agree. I just, I find it an interesting conundrum to see them put in. Mark, you've mentioned this before on the show. Uh, what do you think? I mean, is this fair to those fans? Is this kind of finally certain fans who were against the Legends continuity in the first place kind of getting their just desserts? Now they have to do it? Kind of a yan-yan type of mindset? I mean, what's your perspective well, on this? I don't think it's necessarily a yan-yan. I think it's kind of a yes and no. I think it's going to come down to each fan deciding what it is they want. Uh, if you're a fan like me that wants to know more, wants to have the little connections and stuff, I think this is a great opportunity. Uh, but if you're one like Barrett that doesn't want to, I don't think it's like, like Jonathan said, I don't think it's going to impact them at all. Um, granted now Lucasfilm could do something where, you know, a major event happens. Well, okay. Let's, let's take it from a legends perspective. Okay. Luke falling to the dark side only happened in dark empire. It's referenced in the books, but it only happened in that comic. You didn't have to go and find that comic and read it to know about it. They kind of give you enough details, but it was one of those things where you could take it and, and read it if you wanted to or not. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it's one that they have to, but I think if you're like me and you want to have that detail, you're going to be looking for it. And I think that's a nice thing in that regard. But I think those like Baron that don't want to aren't going to need to. I think the creative powers are going to be like, well, let's make it in a way where we want them to kind of want to buy it, but let's not make it where it's hampered by it. almost like how they're kind of like, well, let's not stick on continuity here for good storytelling kind of direction. There's another component here that we're maybe overlooking. The Rebels animated series is, for the most part, a kid's show. It is on Disney XD, and its target audience is kids between the ages, I'd say, of 7 to 15. Oh, I was thought you were going to say to 55. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's just us. Um, and you know what? Ki most kids age 7 to 15 are not going to read A New Dawn. And mm -hmm. if they do, they're going to be like, what? The, you know, mining and, and, and corruption? And wh what? This is boring. Where's the space battles? And they're going to walk away. I have to agree with that one, unfortunately. I mean, it didn't have that kick that a lot of people attribute to heir to the empire. But that's now, also a generational thing now anyway. I mean, I, it was hard enough to get kids to read when I was, you know, the nerd kid always carrying around a Star Wars book. Uh, I, outside of my AP classes, uh, I, well, when I was teaching in a brick-and-mortar school, aside from my AP classes, 
I would probably say that throughout the span of a year, I'd maybe see 10 out of 100 plus students that I would have, maybe even more than that, um, who would actually be carrying around a book they were reading for pleasure as opposed to reading it because they had to for a class. It just seems like reading for entertainment is not something that in a lot of ways the current younger generations are doing. Granted, the show still, the demographic they're aiming for probably skews still a little bit younger than the generation that would be picking up adult novels and reading them for the first time. Uh, but still, there is a generational difference here that as Star Wars is growing, the audience is changing, and Star Wars as a, as a multimedia franchise hasn't really changed all that much. The, the novels are still, you know, standard adult novels. You would expect maybe some type of more app-based approach, a choose-your-own-adventures with app Based things, perhaps. <laughs> um, I don't know. It, it it's a it's a conundrum, but I think that's something that every franchise deals with. Uh, the book, just the market of books in general, is dealing with. You know, you don't have something like a Kindle to really sort of re-inspire some people to read because of the portability of it all. Uh, I would imagine the print book sales just declining and declining and declining as generationally things are changing. Well, there's a lot of generations now that are just going straight to audiobook. I mean. I'm I've reluctantly just started doing it, but Riley from the Star Wars Report, that's pretty much the majority of the books he digests is through audio form. So there's that as well that, you know, not many people are grabbing the actual books and reading them. So, I mean, there's that you got to contend with. You know, it's funny that you bring that up um, and that you brought up Audible before. I I have this kind of weird process. I also do Audible, but before that I would get the audiobooks as well. I always read it first and then listen to the audiobook. I also have a, a decent commute in the morning. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to, to be able to listen to podcasts, listen to audiobooks. Mm -hmm. But um, because I do that, my two boys have become interested. And so I've been allowing them to, you know, I've been downloading certain books to their, you know, their iPod so that they can listen to it. And as a result, my older son, my 11-year-old, has just been gobbling up the, uh, you know, both the old EU and the uh, the new new continuity. He's gone through all the uh, the Zon books. He's gone through the X-wing series, the Jedi Academy trilogy. You know, he's been kind of bugging me to do some other things, and I guess that is a way that you can for those who are interested. You can make some of these, you know, books that are really above their level accessible to that generation. So we've been hitting characters here. Um, Hera, we don't get much on, really. I mean, we, we just kind of know her as a rebel agent. We don't know anything about really her sources or anything. Maybe she's already in contact with Fulcrum. Maybe she is not, though. Six years of not ever meeting him is probably stretching it to a degree. Um, but we also get these characters that also are somewhat of one-offs, as far as we know. We've got Skelly, and we've got Zaluna Miner, uh, of Miter's Minox. And I gotta say, they felt... What's the word I'm looking for? They didn't feel like they had the depth, necessarily, of the people around them. But then again, you look at Rebels, I don't feel like Zeb and Sabine have gotten the chance to get the depth of the other characters on the show. I mean... Jonathan got it right. There's basically the three primary characters, it feels like, on that show right now. Uh, I do like the idea of Skelly being sort of the war veteran who is now, 
you know, taking the kind of job he can get, and nobody seems to want to listen to him, so he feels like he has to do something. I almost, I don't think it's the right, the right time period historically, but in my mind, I'm always picturing sort of like a Grapes of Wrath type of feel to this guy. Like, he was a veteran, look what's going on, he's down on his luck, look what's all happening, he wants to do something, why won't anyone listen to the crazy old man, type of thing. Um, the fact that in a lot of ways, as this character is supposed to be a heroic character, he in some respects mirrors terrorists. He's setting bombs to make his <laughs> point in some cases, not meaning to kill anybody. His final act essentially is a suicide bombing to take out their enemy as, he, as Vidian is trying to escape the, the forager as it's being damaged. Zaluna, again, kind of the same thing, though, where it sort of seems like she's got the one track to her personality... And we don't get to know a lot about her, to know a lot of depth. We know about the background of the company, a little bit of hers, and how in a lot of ways her perspective on things is really shattered by all the things that she's seeing with the Empire and now, what she's seeing firsthand with what is going on uh, that's changing her into being willing to stand up, to be someone who doesn't just watch, but someone who acts. Um, I don't know. Both of these characters are basically off the field by the time we're done. Skelly blows himself up to take out Vidian. Zaluna is blinded and off on a planet on her own, dispensing the wisdom of, hey, you know, Hera, Kanan, you two should go off and work together. Not as a couple or anything. There's a war to fight, so to speak, but you two should work together. Um, did you expect or want to see these characters again? And if so, what drew you to them? Because I, for one, by the end of the book, I'm not, I don't want to say that I'm glad they're gone, but they never really grabbed me enough to make me hope that we would see them in further stories with Kanan and Hera. Well, um, they're, you know, it's funny. I had a different tack on these two characters. First of all, I felt that Skelly was very much sort of a commentary on what, you know, the American servicemen coming back from, you know, wars in the Middle East are like, you know, they're kind of almost seen as disposable, kind of brushed off to the side. You know, Skelly's had a really rough time of it. You know, besides, you know, he, you know, he had a really dangerous job. And, you know, this is somebody who served in the Clone Wars and he was, he was a tunnel rat. He would, you know, he was a demolitions expert. He mm -hmm. would go in and set bombs to, you know, assist the war effort. He worked alongside the clone troopers. Uh, in his last mission, a, you know, a general or some other, I think, I think he said it was a general, you know, ordered them to take this, take the separatists in, in placement. And it was a poor decision. And Skelly trying to make it work got harmed. And he was the only one to survive from his group. And then they graft on, a Klatuinian prosthetic because they don't have the right type of equipment. I mean, for me, this screams, you know, the fact that mm -hmm. the, the American military doesn't feel that they're supported. And then when they come back, they're, they're kind of, you know, whatever, go, go off and, and don't, don't show us what, you know, war is really like. And Zaluna was, she's Homeland, she's, she's Homeland Security. She's, thinking she's doing the right thing by basically encroaching on the, the personal freedoms of the people on, on Gorst. And 
I liked both characters, but Nathan, you're right. They they were very two dimensional. But that being said, the thing that I keep wondering, I mean, Skelly's not coming back. We know that, but there's no reason that we might not see Zaluna in Rebels at some time in the future. And I am going to go back to where you said you, you kind of gl- glossed over Hera. I think we did learn a lot about Hera in this. And what we didn't learn about her, we, we certainly got curious. First of all, we learned Hera's last name, Sendula. And what do we know about the last name Sendula? Well, there was a Twi'lek named Sendula in the Clone Wars series who was a freedom fighter on Rylaw. We also learned that Hera is not only out there gathering information, she's recruiting people and she's learning about who's out there who might be willing to stand up to the Empire. We learned that she is a rebel. She's an activist. She has a cause. We, we do learn a lot about Hera that when you know that about her, watching rebels... For me, anyway, it expands what that character stands for. You know, you nail Skelly, Jonathan. I mean, that's one thing for me. The whole aspect of of it being like the military men coming home and stuff, that's definitely what that character represented in my eyes as well. Uh, Nathan, to your question about wanting to see either one of those characters again, Scully, honestly, I didn't care about Scully all the way up until about halfway through the story. I honestly was kept questioning why he kept coming back. The way Jonathan... The way John Jackson Miller writes it all by the time it gets to the end, Scully was a character I very much appreciated more, but he wasn't one that I felt was integral or or anything in that regard that I would like to see him come back. Whereas Zal, Zal was in an interesting position because she gave us insight into data collection methods over time. And by that, I mean not only the Old Republic, but the Empire as well and how they've kind of evolved from there. And the level of information that she had, not just for the Rebellion and things of that nature, but the way that they could go about that kind of surveillance and stuff and the way it was presented to us, the reader, I thought that was invaluable insight into things. Uh, very interesting in that regard. And it allows that character, even though she's blind, she could still serve a purpose in some form or fashion. She knew a lot of stuff. Granted, while she had her eyesight, she would definitely been a bigger asset to have. Uh, and to get into what Jonathan said about Hera, I, I will agree. They fed us crumbs. There was definitely enough about her backstory to whet our appetites. Uh, you know, the, the back, the last name and stuff. I mean, that's something they threw out there. And and like Jonathan said, if you're not paying attention to the Clone Wars, you may have missed the whole freedom fighter angle. Uh, but I think that's something that, that is really cool about moving forward in this new canon era where everything counts. It's like that's that aspect of it doesn't necessarily always have to be something they come back to for it to be there and be something that they, you know, that the readers that are absorbing it all could get that little data and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, I mean, I like them in this story. I don't think they got a lot of depth compared to the others. But they played their parts well in this story. I just don't necessarily see, in Zaluna's case, the one that's alive, the need for her to come back because one of the big things was that she had that data cube with all kinds of information. Well, if she hands off the data cube, not really as much of a need for her personally to come back. And it seems like she's wanted at the end there to just sort of live a life away from uh, from the struggle. She may come back. I just, I doubt it. As for Hera, I will say the Syndulla thing was pretty cool, but I can't recall if this was where I first saw Syndulla attached to her name. So it's it's been quite a while in that case. So 
if that was the first place we saw it, that's awesome. Although, I know we get it other places like the Visual Guide too, so we would have gotten that eventually. Uh, and that, I think, is, is where I go with all of Hera's development in this book. It's all stuff we got eventually anyway. Like, okay, she's running around, she's working as a rebel coordinator, she's looking to recruit people as she recruits the crew. You know, she's working with other cells out there to see what's going on and has an interest in stopping the Empire where she can, taking these jobs, etc., etc. It doesn't feel like there's anything about her that we learn in this book that we don't learn by watching Rebels. Whereas with Kanan, there is. We know the Caleb Doom angle of who he had been, the connection with Obi-Wan, what he's been doing all these years since Order 66. As you said at the beginning, Mark, it's basically his story. It seems like with Hera, we get extremely little by comparison. And I assume that's by design, because it, as I said before, it seems as though even with the, the Journal of Sabine, they're laying these hints that there's got to be something more to her background. And I'm honestly, I'm hoping, again, canon making all things equal in this case, that we're going to get some of that background in Lords of the Sith. Because if you've read the preview, the real quick few-page preview of Lords of the Sith that they put in the back of the A New Dawn exclusive advanced readers edition, um, Shamsindulis shows up at least in one part of Lords of the Sith, which suggests to me, maybe, just maybe, they'll have a way to work Hera and her background into that, so that book winds up having some resonance for Rebels as well. But, I don't know, I just didn't, I didn't feel like I knew Hera by the end of this book. I, don't, I felt like I knew Skelly and Zaluna better than I knew Hera by the end of this book. Whereas I knew Kanan a lot better than anyone, and Vidian alongside him. Hera was sort of this blank slate. And I'll say the same thing for Rebels, though. Hera, we know a lot about how she interacts with the others. We talk about how her, she's sort of like the mom, the ones that holds it together and whatnot. Um, I don't think we get as much informational depth, at least, with Hera in the show either. Again, because it seems like they're keeping it a secret. Hera and Sabine. Their backgrounds are almost blank slates in the show still at this point. The two female characters. Uh, I don't think it's was designed that way. But with get, with Zeb, we get a whole episode that a lot of the plot revolves around this whole we can't let them have the disruptors because of what they did to my people and Callus showing up and he's the one that did it to my people. And Kanan gets this background here. Ezra, his background is the show. Hera, Sabine, especially Hera? Not so much. It, there needs to be a point at which that depth is revealed, but I guess because of when this is being written, it couldn't be revealed. But it makes Hera feel like, not a secondary character, but certainly her, the, the, the volume, it, it's hard to describe. Like, if I were to draw these out as dots, you'd have giant circles, huge dots for Kanan, and only a teeny tiny one for Hera next to larger ones for the others. Um, they just didn't give Hera much of a chance to really shine here. Probably by design. Yeah, I have a feeling they're holding on to something big for Hera, something that's going to, I don't know if it's going to rock the, the core group of the Rebel crew or what, but it's going to be something large. You know, there was one other very secondary character in this book that I found myself really enjoying because I think it helped expand the character of Kanan based on their interactions and that was Okadaya. that was Odakaya with a d before the k nope it's Okadaya. at least that's how john uh mark thompson said it well yeah. i've got Odakaya everywhere in my summary so i guess let me check the book 
It's O K A D I A H. Okay. Wah, wah. No. <laughs> that is why you fail. And that means I get to do an edit, replace all. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can't even give you crap because I say Koran Horn wrong all the time and other but names. Okadaya, I thought, was just one of those characters that whenever I read his lines made me smile, especially on what on on page one forty five where Hera, well, what is it here? Ask anyone. Kanan waved over the heads of the drunken mob. Okadaya, tell her about me. Unseen amid the drunken crowd, Okadaya called out, "A fine pilot, an occasional humanitarian, and a somewhat tolerable house guest. Marry him, my darling." Yeah, Okadaya was a fun one. And and I, I like the fact that in many ways, Okadaya was the Agent Coulson for Kanan's Avengers group. You know, it was like once the Sith hit the fan for Okadaya, it became very personal for Kanan. And, and it was interesting, too, that Kanan was kind of kicking himself for the fact that it had become personal, that he had hung around Okadaya long enough that he felt that. I mean, and he was about to get out. And, and Harry even calls him on it at one point. Was like, "Weren't you just going to be the one to leave everybody behind? Why are you turning around now?" Oh man, see, I'm again. I feel like I'm the opposite of you guys. I I wasn't really drawn to the character. He felt like he was kind of like the 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 sidekick buddy or the uh, the helpful Uncle Phil type character to be around the others, just to kind of play his plot role and to have someone that Kanan somewhat positively related to in this case. I mean, I, one thing, you know, I mean, until we recorded this, I had no idea it was Okadaya instead of Odakaya. That's one mm. indicator of just how much I really didn't get drawn to the character. But, I mean, he really, he, uh, part of it probably is because I was constantly picturing him as, I think it was Uncle Gundy from Droids. Most of the time when I saw this, really, uh, you're going there. I mean, you could you could tell with this character that something was probably he either was going to be written off and not show up much in the story, or each time he came back, it was oh something's going to happen to him and that's going to make Kanan care. But even then, I had a hard time really getting drawn to the character or caring about the character because I was constantly picturing his Uncle Gundy losing his hat and having R two D two run over the hat to get at him, kind of stuff. You know, Dark Nabbit. Uh, but that's probably a, a bad side effect of how many times I've had to watch droids. But <laughs> I mean, I just loved in the beginning when I, I think Vidian is going through the mines and, you know, getting rid of it or, or telling the groups to get rid of these older miners because they're not as efficient. And he comes up behind Okadaya and he goes, and you're really old. And mm -hmm. Okadaya without turning around goes, and you're really ugly. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. I that character just cracked me up. It, it, honestly, every time I read him, I smiled. I was the same. I, although I have to wonder if this could also be because you and I listened to the audio drum. I know some of the characters I didn't care for until I heard Mark Thompson's accents that he gave to him. Uh, Okadaya and Skelly especially had some hilarious ones. I mean, Skelly was kind of one of those oh, no, 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 I don't know kind of thing, Kanan and. I don't know. There's just something about the way he he played up their voices that it wasn't how I had originally had heard them. 
And once I'd heard that, uh, something about it just changed the way I was looking at the character. So that could be part of it for us. I know that Okadaya wasn't somebody I really cared that much about until I switched to the audiobook, and then I was really enjoying the character. Well, but see, remember, I read it before I listened to the audio, and I liked him even the first read. Oh, well, there you go. So wait, wait, it, it wait. definitely appeals. So so you're saying that Skelly's voice, if we want to hear it correctly in our head, should be a cross between Zeb on Rebels and Gilbert Gottfried? Yeah, pretty much, Kanan. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm glad I didn't re- listen to the audio. I may have had to kill myself. <laughs> oh, oh, you just wait. No. Zalua kind of talked like this a lot. You're like, wait, what? It, but Sloan was the one that I really thought Mark Thompson didn't get. That was not at all way English accent on, on Sloan. I didn't really care for, for that character in the yeah, audiobook. If you're imperial and evil, you got to have an English accent, right? That's true. At least the Tarkin Doctrine says so. <laughs> you know, one thing, though, that, that I think we should touch on before we leave is an angle of the relationship between Hera and Kanan that has had me perplexed. You know, in the TV show, she's calling him love and, and things along those natures and implying that there is a relationship there. Granted, when I'm reading A New Dawn, it is very clear Kanan wants a relationship and we all know exactly what type of relationship he would like to have. Come episodes end, he's a little more okay with to kind of just rolling with the punches just to be in the same presence as Hera. But there is definitely, for lack of better terms, a hard-on for the girl. I would agree. And you could tell he, his attraction for her is part of what sort of, I think it's part of his motivation to, to continue on and, you know, take that stand against the empire because he, you know, when that all starts, she's breaking back into moon glow and he's waiting there for her because it's her. And then later they're working together, and eventually it's because of Okadaya's death that it goes further. But he he taps into his Jedi powers later. He taps into the Force to save her. And th- there is very much a connection. And at times, and maybe it's just projection, I feel it could be reciprocal. And then we talked about it a lot on Rebels Roundtable. What is the relationship between them those years later is there something between them? And it just seems very much that there is, I mean, based on a lot of different things. But Nathan, I guess you have some contradictory information to that. Well, okay, before I give my actual opinion on this, because I I find my head about to explode, uh, on page 365 of A New Dawn, we get... He obviously liked her starship. She could see as he walked around it. That was good. He was also smitten with her, she could tell. And she was alright with that, too. She didn't want to tell him that her war had already begun, and in that war, there was no time for anything else. He would probably understand that eventually. So yeah, you get that sense that maybe there's an attraction, and she's okay with the attraction, but there's just not the time for it at this point. Then you've got The Rebellion Begins which is by Michael Kogge, if I'm pronouncing that right, K-O-G-G-E, which is a novelization for younger audiences of Spark of Rebellion. It's the one that adds those cool new scenes, like telling us how Agent Callus gets command of the Lawbringer and all that kind of stuff. And it's a really cool adaptation 
with added stuff you don't usually see in a book of this type, unless it's by Jason Fry, usually. And we have that scene straight out of Spark of Rebellion, where Kanan hurried into the cockpit. Atmospheric clouds fogged the viewports. Hera pulled on the flight stick, taking the ghost into a steep climb. You said this is a routine op. What happened down there? She asked. Chopper, plugged into the shield controls, responded first with a chiding snortle. Yeah, apparently what he does is called a snortle. Kanan knew the droid was right. He, Sabine, and Zeb had screwed up. But this was not the time to lay blame. Chopper, please, it's been a difficult morning. He has a point, love. We've got four TIE Fighters closing in. Love. Hera tossed that word around like it meant nothing. Years earlier, Kanan would have believed in her affection and told her how exceptional a pilot she was. Now he deflected her sarcasm with that of his own. How about a little less attitude and a little more altitude? So, at least as far as that book's concerned, if there is an attraction still there, it's something that hasn't been acted upon, and it's kind of to the point where Kanan's, it almost sounds like he's kind of bitter about that. He's just, he's kind of blowing off anything she says because he knows not to expect her to reciprocate. Uh, I will say, though, the thing about Hera and the attraction between Kanan and her is one of the things about Kanan that I liked the least in the book. Uh, it makes sense that he would be the kind to say, wow, she's hot, and try to go for her, because that's the kind of relationships, or lack thereof, that he's been having throughout these years of being in hiding. And they mention that a few times. But basically, a big part of his motivation of doing anything in this story is, as the Cinema Sins Everything Wrong With videos might say, the power of boners is stronger. In other words, because he's like, wow, she's hot, I know nothing about her, but damn, he's going to follow her into anything. He's doing what he can to get beside her to get into her pants, and eventually it becomes something more noble. But for the most part, at least when he first meets her and all these times of trying to encounter her and trying to talk to her, he's being a shallow a-hole. He's Tom Cruise in half of his earliest films. You would expect him and Odakaya, or excuse me, Okadaya, in the bar, sitting back and singing You've Lost That Love and Feeling to her in hopes of getting her into bed. Um, it makes sense for where the character was at the time, and it's a big progression to the respect that he has for her later. But, I don't know, there's a part of me that says that if this does turn out to be a love story... It needs to be a story in which he grew to actually love her, and so did she for him, rather than saying, like, well, when they first met, there was an attraction, and it just built from there. Because if we find that within that six years, that's when a relationship was somehow building, then it starts with him being a shallow prick who only wanted her for her body, and maybe the fact that Twi'lek, like, who make decent handlebars. It just, it, I don't know, he... His view on her and the fact that his motivation was basically because he wanted to get in her pants bothered me throughout this book. It makes sense, but it's not really what I expect to see in a hero. Even Han and Lando usually weren't presented that way, and Lando's the smooth talker who's supposedly always trying to get into everyone's pants. At the end of it all, too, he gives up his Jedi powers and lets everyone know he's a Jedi because of his feelings for her. Okay, I got to challenge you, Nathan. First of all, it's not initially what she looks like that attracts him to her. It's her voice. Okay, and, well, he he thinks she has a sexy voice, so he... Okay. It's the same thing. It's just what's about, ooh, that's sultry, as opposed to, ooh, those curves are sultry. Um. Okay, well, but let's, let's remember one other thing. Even though Kanan has renounced 
his Jedi powers, he is still very much tuned into the Force. And even though it's not stated here, and I'm reaching, and I know it, who's to say that part of his attraction to her or part of his you know, being drawn to her is not motivated by his connection to the Force and the Force is in guiding him to her? That's one. Now, I'll go with it. The other thing, you know, the whole part where you said that basically there there isn't a relationship based on the uh, based on the young young audience book, which I after you you know revealed this, I went and bought it and I read it. I also rewatched several of the episodes and. The one episode out of darkness, you know, with the fear knocks, there's a point where Hera comes back to the ship with the Phantom, and there's a banter between Hera and Kanan. And I've done my share of couples therapy, and as a therapist, not as a client, thank you very much. And you beat I've, me to it, man. You beat me yeah, to it. I know. <laughs> I figured I'd, ju- I'd just jump and, and, and derail that one. But the the banter between them, if they aren't in a relationship, they it's 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 bordering on it. Just the interaction between them. And if you go back and you listen to our episode on Rebels Roundtable, we all called it out. There is more than just a camaraderie. There is more than just a friendship there. And but couldn't you I, make the argument that that's perhaps like a Han and Leia before they got together thing, possibly though? No, no, because Han and Leia, it was there was a lot of uh, not animosity, but there was a lot of like sexual tension. There was banter, but it was it was almost they were trying trying to degrade each other. This it was mutual. It was flirting. There's really no other way to describe it. It was flirting. True. I don't know. I guess one thing we can definitely say before they finally reveal one way or the other in the show whether these two have a relationship or not. One thing is absolutely for certain: these two together still have more chemistry than Anakin and Padme ever did. You want to talk about the power of boners is stronger. Apparently the power of boners is stronger than the need to, you know, preserve the galaxy and not let secrets destroy them, etc. etc. So at least they got that going for him. Well, you know, the whole thing with Anakin and Padme is she was the first girl he ever saw. And, you know, the Jedi kind of kept him away from it, so. And she really dug 10-year-old boys. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> he was nine. Not 10. He turned 10 yeah. right after the show, right after the episode. It was either that or the uh, Catholic priest, right? <laughs> oh, see, I wasn't even going to go there this time. People got too pissed off at that one last time around. You know, one last thing I want to touch before we go, though, was the moment that Kanan reveals that he's a Jedi to Hera. I thought that was a really cool play in uh, the fact that when it happens, Hera seems to recognize what the reveal cost Kanan, what he put at risk. And I thought that was an interesting moment between the two as well. It kind of plays into everything that goes on with the, the pseudo relationship that they seem to have as well. And there's a moment earlier, as I recall, where it's kind of hinted at, I think it's when he's moving 
Okadaya's body, perhaps? Um, it seems like she, and, and they, it's mentioned in that part that I read, it's actually right before the part uh, that I read a moment ago, uh, when she talks about basically how if he's going to reveal his past and the truth about it, he'll reveal it in time. I do really like the fact that this isn't like we might have seen in many other Star Wars stories and other stories where you get someone who's like maybe a superhero with powers that they're hiding, where it's, holy crap, you've got powers? That's so cool. Tell me, tell me. Or just kind of like making a big deal out of it. She recognizes it, recognizes it's a very personal thing. He must have been hiding this for a reason. And she has the respect for him not to push, to allow it to simply develop on its own. And that, I think, tells us a lot about the strength of Hera as a character, that she's not going to be the stereotype of a companion to a Jedi that we usually would have expected to see, that she is her own person. And we've talked a lot with Rebels Roundtable about how she is one of the stronger characters of the show, even without having a lot of her background known. And that, I think, played well. They, you can definitely see the influence of trying to keep it true to the show. Although, you want to talk about keeping the details true to the show, look at the cover, folks. That blaster Hera is holding that's the blaster that, as I recall, she puts the little power charge off and hands off to Gaul Travis in a recent episode that we talked about on Rebels Roundtable. The, you can see the story group's hand at work, which is a good thing, I think. Well, and, and another thing about her is is the insight that she has when she's looking at Kanan towards the end. Like, the things she could think about above the Jedi Order. I mean, she has an idea of what the Jedi were, obviously, from her uncle. But it's like, Kanan had gravitated towards a dangerous calling on Gorse. Because... To him, it wasn't dangerous. So he secretly could call on his prodigious talents if danger struck. She suspected that described all the odd jobs he'd taken in his life. It was the strategy of someone trained in a certain discipline and yet forbidden from practicing it. That, his nomadic nature, and his lack of family ties all add up. Kanan probably wasn't yet a Jedi when the massacre came. She doubted he even had a lightsaber. All he had in the galaxy was one bag of clothing. And if he'd hidden it in there, she would never go looking for it. Hera wondered if the young Jedi had became apprenticed. She didn't know, and such information was harder to come by now than just about anything else. Where had he been? When had the great betrayal had happened? Who had been with him? Had someone warned him? And did that someone yet exist? Kanan might tell her someday, or he might not. She was all right with that. And I, I thought that was interesting, too. I mean, she seemed to have quite a bit of knowledge about what happened with Order 66 and what was going on with the Jedi. Well, that was because of her uncle. It had to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the only conclusion I'm able to draw so far. We may find out that there's more to it than just the uncle down the road, which would be cool with all that's been implied thus far. You know, the other thing, you know, again, before we go, that that struck me is Hera is really young at this point. I think Kanan at one time, you know, guessed that she's, in her she's, late teens. Yeah, she's 18 here. She's very mature 18. And the type of maturity that she shows, again, drawing on the uh, psychological background, often comes from some type of great hardship or great trauma. And for his part, I mean, Kanan is still somewhat young at this point. I mean, he's 22 years old. I mean, he's not a teenager anymore. He's only four years older than she is. Uh, but he's had all the, his own sort of traumatic life experiences he's gone through. One thing I do like as we're closing out is there is sort of a symmetry to the way this ends because here's Kanan who, in a sense, and he does say near the end, you know, how he get by with or without the force he always had. But here's a guy 
who had tried very hard not to be a Jedi. And he's starting to kind of be okay with the side of him that is. Whereas Hera has just seen the potential of him as a Jedi, seeing him use the Force, but she's okay if he's not. And I like the symmetry there, where there's sort of a a sense that these two have a dynamic that they don't have expectations of each other. They're just going to work together. And I think in a lot of ways, we've talked a lot of times on Rebels Roundtable about how this makes sort of a family rather than being just a crew. And that, I think, is one of the healthier aspects of a family, that it's about accepting who the person is, whatever direction they're leaning, rather than expecting them to fill a particular role. And you definitely get that by the end of this book. Jonathan, any last comments before uh, we wrap it up? No, I mean, the only thing I'd say is that I really did, I mean, is this the time to say it? I really enjoyed the book, and I think that if you like Rebels, you really would do yourself well to to read this book. It gives you such an interesting perspective on some of the characters, and the, in some ways, this this new universe. Mm-hmm. Interesting is definitely a good word for that. I, I don't think it's critical that you have to read this to enjoy everything that's coming. I don't think this is like one of the must-have stories of the new canon, but it is a fun ride. It is a fun story, and and the interesting aspect of the characters is definitely well worth the time it's going to take you. I, too, think this is something not necessarily um, critical, but you will get more, again, the Stover effect. You will get more... And for those who are listening to Rebels Roundtable, what I mean by the Stover effect is I read or listened to the audiobook of Revenge of the Sith before I saw the film, so that depth made me enjoy the film more than a lot of my peers at the time. Um, I think the Stover effect takes effect here. I think that you're going to care more and have a better feel for at least Kanan, maybe Hera, but especially mm-hmm. Kanan in Rebels if you read this book. If you're a viewer of the series who really loves it, this is definitely one to check out. Mark said this is not one of the essential reads of the new canon, I would challenge that by saying there aren't any essential reads yet (laughs) in the new canon. Um, If you're watching Rebels and enjoyed the films in the Clone Wars, you've pretty much got the core right now. So far, Del Rey and Marvel haven't really done anything to take any of the things that they're producing and make it must-read material. But saying that... This is one that fans of Rebels would definitely want to check out. On the other hand, if you are someone who is not following Rebels at all, this probably isn't where you want to start in reading the new canon. For that, you're probably going to want to pick up either Heir to the Jedi or Tarkin. And this is, by the way, also a quick chance for a quick reminder, folks. Don't forget, if you want to win the original two-disc widescreen DVD releases of all three prequel films from their original releases in 2001, 2002, and 2005, plus that bonus, the story of Star Wars DVD that was released as a pack-in bonus feature for those buying Revenge of the Sith in 2005 at Walmart stores. You can still enter to win that all the way up until March 15th, the Ides of March, by emailing us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com, putting DVD giveaway in the subject line, and putting your mailing address, in case you win, inside the body of the email. Good luck. And with that, we leave you with this. The people who had taught Kanan as a child had left him with a handful of skills and some parting advice. Nothing more. That had been their total legacy. Heeding their instructions was all he owed them. He would continue to avoid Coruscant, to avoid detection. He didn't understand what he needed to stay strong for, but he continued to defend himself against anyone 
who challenged him. And the Force? Well, it might be with him, or it might not. Caden would get by either way. He always had. He slapped the underside of the ghost and winked as he made for the ramp. Let's go somewhere. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Wait, 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 before you say that, Mm -hmm. you gotta throw it in. (laughs) No, no, not a time for the Rebels blare in your ears. You should have done done that at the beginning. Oh, God. See, and then, but then people would have stopped listening, like, dang, man, why you bust my eardrums? Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And thank you, Jonathan, for coming along and sharing your opinion as well. Oh, it was my pleasure. I hope I can come back another time. Yes, go ahead and throw out some contact information for the Beyonders and other Rebels out there that already know about you. But hey, just do it anyway. Well, uh, besides Rebels Roundtable, I'm also a reporter on Star Wars Action News. If you want to drop me an email... You can write me at Jonathan, that's J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N, at republicforces.com. Thank you, Jonathan, once again. And remember, you guys can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. Help us combat the trolls. If you find what we do entertaining, let others know on iTunes. Let them know. Let them find out how fun it can be. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. And of course, if you're interested in our thoughts on Rebels, we all three of us are members of the team for the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the original Rebels Roundtable, which you can find at rebelsroundtable.com, starwarsreport.com, on Twitter at Rebels Round, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable. We have new shows coming up each time a new episode of Rebels airs, so be sure to check out that podcast, too. Jonathan is our fearless leader. Oh, I'm getting blamed for this now? Well, <laughs> you need to be a fearless leader to deal with people like me and Barrett all the time. Not Mark so much. Mark, uh, Mark kind of handles himself well, but yeah, me and Baron. Yeah, you gotta be fearless, my Baron. <laughs> well, I mean, I love talking with you guys, and anytime I can talk with two people as knowledgeable as you guys are about Star Wars, it's always a good time for me. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you can get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe, now Legends, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with the book you flat out hate, because Audible members can exchange any audiobook within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, like I did, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. Who's not ready? 
And Nathan. And Jonathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. It'll turn out we'll see Zaluna again and I'll be proven very wrong. Or that Kanan and Hera are going to start a relationship. So let me guess. They're all, will their offsprings only have one Leku then? Or three? But it'll be in the back of the head, so it'll be like a ponytail. <sighs> Good one. <laughs> now, if you're if you're a half-human, half-Twi'lek, and you're a female, are you obligated to wear the kind of clothes that everybody but Hera does? Or do you get to actually choose? Or would Hera put a stop to that anyway? She put a stop to it. Stop dressing like your species! Dress uh, like me! Break the well, rules! Come on! No, I mean, um, I guess a half Twi'lek could wear pants but a tube top, or a shirt but then um, Daisy Dukes. Okay, so a half Twi'lek would uh, dress like Ahsoka. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Or, or Shay from Dawn of uh, the Jedi with her little ass window. Who was apparently disappointed in the show. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't like us talking about Chopper. He's got envy issues. Yes, yes. And with us tonight, as always, is Nathan. Except that's not... What? Okay. I said me and Whistler, but I didn't say you. And with us tonight, as always, is... That's kind of more of an opening thing, is it? All right, let me, ch- let me say that again. Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. what I say. Is that? That's what the hell? Oh my Mark's god! That's going in I the bloopers too. Like, it's it's Holy too much for him. We're sitting here at like one one thirty, twelve thirty, and Mark's like sitting there at at like ten thirty at night. He's like, I can't do it, man. I know. I, I I've been managing myself too much. You just apparently. need to do Whistler sound, and then I'll do the and Nathan, and then Jonathan can add it, and and Jonathan, and we. Yeah. yeah. So I'll just shut up and mute now. You, well, you need Whistler's actual sound, one one that isn't him saying oh, this show. <laughs> Well, you did, you little asshole. <laughs> what you need is chopper for this one. I, I, I've been looking. I'm waiting for a chopper soundboard. In fact, I should have you send me some audio clips so I can make one. <laughs> All right. All right, Whistler, you ready? Let's do this. I'm trying to think of something. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an I got nothing kind of moment here. Uh, 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 uh. The odds that they'll get in love and have babies? No, so you don't want us the odds that... that... Uh, ah. And and it's true. I do handle myself. That's why I'm not left in a Lomeron. In a room alone a lot. A room alone. No, no. <laughs> and that goes in the bloopers. I <laughs> somewhere out there. There's a. Uh, sound. Oh, I always, I always, I always tease my the older scouts too. I'm like we, we, one of the older senior scouts that comes back. I'm always calling him five more minutes. <laughs> His mom's like, how can you call him five more minutes? I'm like, he's at that age. He keeps disappearing, and for five minutes we can't find him. And then he comes back. He's always oh, kind of sweaty. He's like, what were you doing? Five more minutes. <laughs> five more minutes. Come on. Uh, that, if only Riley cool. had to listen to these and approved them before they came out. <laughs> We'd never go live. All right.